Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. This is the last episode in our current mini-series on biosecurity, at least for now. So far, we've spoken a lot about global catastrophic biological risks and interventions to help mitigate against the very worst kinds of pandemics. However, I also wanted to have an episode that just talks about pandemic preparedness more broadly, both because I think it is just really interesting work that's happening right now, uh, and also to help give context to the larger coalition on biosecurity that exists largely outside of the effective altruism community. To help with this, I invited two guests onto the show, uh, Jesse Panu and Joshua Munrad. Both have done a lot of work on GCBRs, but also just have a really broad background that I think is really useful for this. Jesse is a resident physician at Stanford, an LB fellow and a visiting scholar at John Hopkins. Joshua is a biosecurity program officer at Effective Giving and a researcher at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. We begin by talking about the post-COVID landscape of pandemic preparedness, including the current difficulties in getting the U.S. Congress to pass the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan, what changes U.S. agencies like BADA are currently undertaking, the state of the Biological Weapons Convention, and updating government's dual-use policies. We then also touch on Jesse and Joshua's respective work on the role of antivirals and increasing vaccine capacity, and how they've changed their mind since. Towards the end of the episode, we then begin discussing the similarities and differences between GCBR mitigation and general pandemic preparedness false economies between them, and how some interventions are underpinned by global cooperation. As you can maybe tell, we really just touched on an extremely wide set of topics and organizations, so I highly suggest you look at the write-up to find out more. As always, we also have chapter marks to help you guide around the episode, but without further ado, here's the episode. So my name is Jassy, Jassy Penu, and I'm a doctor by training, or as the Brits like to say, a medic. I treat patients mainly in California, but I also work once a year in Kampala, Uganda, to work at a tertiary referral center there. In California, I work at Stanford University. But I think that the main reason you invited me here today is actually because I'm a fellow at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and there I work on health security as well as biosecurity. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Joshua Monrat. Uh, I'm from Denmark, so if anyone's wondering, that's where the accent comes from. So I'm uh, part-time. I am a researcher with the Future of Humanity Institute based at Oxford University with a biosecurity research group there. Um, although these days I spend uh, the majority of my time, almost all of my time, uh, in my other role um, as the program officer for biosecurity with Effective Giving, um, I am really thrilled to be here today. To try and frame this episode, it seems that a lot of biosecurity discussions at the moment inevitably uh, kind of get framed around COVID-19. So I maybe want to start off uh, this episode by asking what's something that you think listeners um, or the effective altruism community might have gotten wrong about how the world responded and learned or perhaps didn't learn from COVID-19? Ooh. That's that's a good question. I I think I'm not sure that broadly across all of EA there's like a unified interpretation of you know what did the world learn after COVID nineteen. But I do feel like often in conversations I have a sense from people that to exaggerate a little that we didn't learn much and that we're back where we started and no progress has been made. And I really feel like if you if you look at things carefully, that that's not the case. I feel like we have made progress and a lot of exciting developments have happened and that, the, and that there is um, more interest in pandemic preparedness overall, particularly in the U.S. And so even though I personally would love to see more interest, more investment and more commitment to pandemic preparedness and pandemic prevention, I 
I still am optimistic about the the level of interest that we're seeing, even though I would love to have more. Yeah, I I second your note of optimism and think there's a lot of things we can be really not only grateful, but also optimistic about coming out of the pandemic and further preparedness for future biological events. I think maybe something where I could imagine disagreeing slightly with, with the kind of people who might be listening to this podcast is on how well mainstream public health institutions and experts did. Um, obviously, that's a very wide generalization, um, but roughly think about institutions like the U.S. Centers for Disease Control or various ministries of public health or academics working on public health or global health or health security, where I think I've seen um, a reaction thinking that a lot of the mainstream institutions seemed uh, unwilling to think creatively or innovatively or too reliant on prior thinking about how to respond to pandemics. And, um, you know, one example might be in how vaccines are rolled out. Are we, do we prioritize giving two doses to everyone as is the specific recommendation for a the medical recommendation for a given vaccine, or do we take a different approach to try and get one dose to as many people as possible based on an argument of maximizing population-level immunity? And I think I saw a lot of people being somewhat exasperated at public health institutions, um, repeating a mantra of, we have to follow the evidence, we have to follow existing guidelines and best practices. And... Um, not to get into the details of this specific question of vaccine dosing, but but I think in general, I, I really recognize that exasperation. And I really do think that there were outsiders to the public health establishment who came up with really genuinely bright ideas that the, the establishment should be listening to. But I also think it's just really important to recognize how unprecedented this event was and how many factors were going on, including the role of politics, or federal governments that might constrain what different public health institutions can do. And secondly, how important it just is to work with the experts who do have decades of experience. Um, and I think rather than seeing it as a sort of adversarial relationship between the new people on the block coming from dis different disciplines um, and the sort of existing expertise, seeing it as hopefully as a more collaborative endeavor, um, which it's a two-way street where people from different disciplines can bring new ideas, but also recognize that people who have worked in the field for a long time probably have some tacit knowledge about certain things that shouldn't be blindly deferred to, but should be taken into account. So I'm, I'm, if I'm right in kind of characterizing here, I'm sensing like a bit of optimism from both of you. Jesse, you mentioned uh, kind of, you know, heightened interest, you know, in biosecurity uh, and pandemic preparedness to try and stop similar or worse events from happening in the future. And Joshua, if I'm uh, right in kind of like summarizing what you said, uh, it seems that a both you know smart outsiders can think of uh, like really good things, and this can actually have uh, important policy consequences uh, too. Uh, and it seems that um, you know there is a lot of expertise um, that was useful either in the past or that is like now currently built up to hopefully also be useful in the future. One thing I want to dig into particularly is uh, kind of what the like policy landscape looks like 
at the moment. So uh, Jesse, maybe following on from what you said, um, I remember there you know, being this kind of like meme that went around that, uh, you know, post COVID, there might be this like open policy window uh, in getting a lot of like ambitious legislation passed. Uh, the American uh, Pandemic Preparedness Plan from the White House being uh, like one of these. Um, but now the, the way that I kind of like read at least a lot of what's going on in his Twitter uh, is that there's like more pessimism about this, that maybe this window has passed, that um, people are like less interested uh, in, in kind of biosecurity um, already like, um, you know, just a few months uh, or, or a year after like lockdowns in, in a lot of like the global north ended, but, you know, still with, with COVID like very much um, raging on. So curious for like, yeah, any of your guys' like thoughts on what the like landscape uh, here looks like, maybe with a particular like focus on, on the US. Yeah, it's certainly a discussion that's been happening a lot. I think at the beginning, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was really lucky to participate in this project that was run by a few of my colleagues called the Apollo Program for Biodefense. And this was something where several of us saw that there might be a policy window and wanted to try and influence it for the better to make sure that resources were being spent on pandemic preparedness and thinking about how we could get that message across. So what we ended up doing was publishing a report with the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. This is a well-known bipartisan group. It's led by former Senator Joe Lieberman and former Governor Tom Ridge. And a few months into the pandemic, we started working on this. And our aim was to produce a technology roadmap for pandemic prevention. And, you know, we knew that there were technologies out there, like many of your, your brilliant podcasts prior talked about metagenomic sequencing and other technologies that could be really powerful tools to help us fight, but even more importantly, prevent future pandemics. And we wanted to guide the government, other philanthropists, other funders to help them learn about these technologies, inform them, and also inspire them to see what a future without pandemics could look like and what technologies would get us there. So I, this is just me speaking from personal experience. When we were working on this report, we were super optimistic, thinking like, look, we can look at all. First, you're just finding out about all of these amazing technologies and how they could be put towards um, preventing pandemics in the future. And you're dreaming up futures where pandemics don't exist and how amazing that'll be for humanity. And we were really optimistic that we could share this, share our optimism and persuade a lot of people to put policies into place that would help incentivize these technologies and start funding them. And after we published the report, we did find that there was a lot of appetite for a roadmap like this. And there was interest from government in terms of helping to set funding priorities, interest from the Biden administration. But where we really had difficulty was getting spending passed through the U.S. Congress. And I think that, you know, that's something that every every interest group faces because it's so hard to get agreement in Congress on particular issues, even bipartisan issues like pandemic prevention. Um, but we still have allies on both sides of the House that are actively working on different types of legislation and trying to get spending on some of these issues and technologies. So I think that you know, during a crisis, everyone is so focused on responding to the crisis, which is completely reasonable. And then now that the crisis is a little bit more under control, there is thinking about how we can restructure agencies or, you know, make sure that things like Operation Warp Speed are built into the U.S. federal government and they don't go away, making sure that we institutionalize those capacities and figuring out why 
that worked so well and how we can keep it going. So I think some of these things are happening in terms of did we end up revolutionizing the government and have them completely change all of their spending? We, of course not. And I think that that's, um, that's not necessarily the goal. So I think that there is still a lot of exciting legislation that's being drafted. There are ins- exciting things like figuring out how to institutionalize Operation Warp Speed and other other things like that that make me optimistic. Yeah, that's a really interesting flag that this is like very much uh, still a live debate. Uh, and, you know, the White House at least seems to be uh, on board and I think has like recently pledged up to, or at least being willing to to, to spend, right, like over $80 uh, billion. And it's really about getting it kind of through Congress uh, at the moment and, and finding different avenues there. But I'm curious what um, seems to be the bottleneck with maybe pandemic preparedness in particular, you know, it was not so many months ago uh, that Congress did pass a big uh, spending bill on climate change, right? Like with the Inflation Reduction Act, and you saw like similar moves um, around um, uh, AI and like semiconductors with, with the CHIPS Act and stuff. I'm, I'm curious what, um, yeah, like might currently be the, the bottleneck um, with pandemics, especially given that, uh, you know, at least the legacy of COVID seems to be like much more alive, right? Than um, AI and climate, which are more uh, like, you know, future looking problems. Yeah, I, I think that part of it is that there's a perception that so much money has been spent on COVID that spending further money has to be very strongly justified. And it's hard to whet people's appetite for further spending. And there is also a perception that, you know, the US government has a certain amount of money for pandemic pandemic response and prevention, and that there's a there's a pie, and that the pie has to be split amongst different players, whether, you know, it's the CDC or NIH or different agencies in the space, different priorities. And there's a lot of discussion about how the pie should be split, as opposed to how do we make the pie bigger for everyone. And, mm. and it's unfortunate, because I think Everyone who is interested in this issue has the same priorities. Everyone is trying to prevent future pandemics, respond to the current one, develop our uh, abilities there. But because there's a perception of it being one pie, then you end up having debate amongst us in terms of we should fund this instead of this, as opposed to let's all figure out how we can fund everything that we need. But of course, yeah, I I think that happens in, in a lot of fields, not just ours. Yeah, and, and the question of funding, I think, is one that initially seems sort of puzzling or hard to um, wrap your head around in, in the sense of there being this very long-standing idea of prevention being so much more cost-effective. Uh, there's economic analysis after economic analysis. There is just a, a recent one just coming out by Ra- Rachel Glenister and colleagues highlighting for the, not for the first time, that investing before a pandemic is just uh, much more cost-effective than waiting for it to occur. Um, but of course, in terms of political incentives, that's that's not quite how simple the calculus is. Um, I think um, I'd be interested to hear, Jassy, now we talk about funding, and, and of course there are a lot of things where you do need financial capital to, to make things happen particularly in terms of developing new technologies. There may be also other areas where it's not so much a question of financial capital, but also one of political capital or of um, coming up with the right policies to implement that aren't so much a question of 
increasing a budget anywhere, but more of maybe regulating something or creating certain norms. So I'd be curious to, to move the conversation into talking a little bit about different policies outside of advancing technologies and increasing funding for, for agencies that really do need them, but sort of more um, yeah, pure policy approaches to improving pandemic preparedness and global biosecurity. If there's anything you'd like to highlight there. Ooh, well, one comes to mind, but I'm not sure that it's what you intended. So I'll give my <laughs> my example and then feel free to, to add on in terms of what you're thinking of as well. But what I thought of was, so there is an agency within the U.S. federal government called BARDA, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. And it's really meant to address, you know, public health priorities, public health technologies and countermeasures that maybe don't have a place within the private market that suffer from market failures or that could be perceived as a public good and where the government needs to step in and provide some incentive mechanism or some funding to really help the market move forward. So BARDA wanted to go ahead and try and incentivize further innovation in the PPE space, in particular masks. And when I say masks, I mean masks, not respirators. So they ran this challenge um, for masks for the public, which is kind of a new category that the U.S. federal government, at least, hadn't really been thinking about too much before the COVID pandemic, because usually the public did not need masks. But now during COVID, there was a lot of interest in trying to figure out new designs and better designs for masks for the public. And so what BARDA did was they had, you know, not a significant amount of funding. I think the total amount of funding they put towards this was 500,000 U.S. dollars in terms of generating, you know, doing um, new material science research or setting up a manufacturing line or setting up a new company. That's a really small amount of funding in the grand scheme of things. But with this prize competition, they actually got really, I think, tens if not hundreds, but they got many submissions from different people oh, wow. who were developing new mask designs. And if you just Google BARDA mask challenge, you can see a lot of these designs that they received, which are quite different and innovative and exactly what they wanted. And when I spoke with the folks at the US government who designed this mask challenge, one thing that they mentioned to me was that the typical federal government approach when they want a new product, such as a new personal protective equipment product, is they will come up with a concept, they'll come up with a target product profile, and then they will go to a few of the major incumbents, the larger companies, and say, hey, can you manufacture this for us? Or, or set up a request for proposals and get some requests from some of these bigger companies. And that's it. It's a good established process, but you really will only hear from a few players who are used to interacting with the government. And the cool thing about this mask prize was that they had submissions from people they didn't even know existed or were working on masks who had completely different approaches to masks. And they really felt like they reached a different community of innovators with this competition and that they got, you know, concept generation 
in directions that they wouldn't have anticipated. So I think that's an example of something new and different that government is trying to do and uh, how they're trying to branch out in the PPE space. And they got a lot of positive feedback and good press for that. I think there are criticisms of the mask challenge. I think, you know, the prize funding was quite small and certainly not sufficient for any company to set up a manufacturing line or to really start um, going through approval processes with the aerosol regulator in the U.S., the NIOSH and, and with FDA. But that's not what the prize was meant for. It was really more of a concept generation prize and then companies and maybe larger incumbents or new companies can run with the ideas that were brought up during the prize. I'm curious um, what types of new applicants uh, they were able to, to crowd in through that competition. Is this startups? Are these you know, research laboratories? Are they companies or yeah, university groups? What, what, what kind of new applicants did they, did they seem to get? Yeah, they, they had a whole range, really. And it, so just to be clear, this mask pr- uh, prize was not set up to generate PPE that would be relevant for a GCBR. Just, so just when, when people listening to this podcast look up the mask prize and they say, well, this PPE is not going to be useful for a really catastrophic pandemic. Th- yes, that you are correct. But that's not what it was designed for. It's more designed for consumer masks. And, but in terms of the people that they received submissions from, there was a submission from Levi's, the denim company that had designed masks. And because they really right. work with textiles a lot, and so they were able to develop a mask and submit it for the prize. And then there was also a submission from a nanotechnology researcher at Stanford University that had previously never worked in the PPE space, but his laboratory had worked on filter materials, nano filter materials. And during the pandemic, they pivoted towards developing filter materials for masks. And so they developed a new filter material that's based on a nanofilter. And they actually started manufacturing and selling those masks. And you could purchase them for a while, although I think they're they're out of stock currently. But so mm-hmm. it really, yeah, reaching, reaching people that you wouldn't normally think of, it, for example, 3M and Honeywell, some of these larger U.S. manufacturers um, reaching outside of that. Yeah, that's really cool. And I guess especially as well, if it seems to be kind of growing the field and growing the amount of people with expertise, right? And also maybe like outside um, opinions and approaches that, yeah, like seems really interesting. Again, like kind of circle back to Joshua, your original question as well, which was, you know, maybe framed around some of the like non, you know, R&D or non-fiscal like types of interventions. Curious, yeah, like for you, if you've got any, um, yeah, like policy interventions or or things that you would like to see uh, in the space, maybe in a similar vein. Yeah, I, I love the 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 example of this um, initiative uh, focused on personal protective equipment. But I, I agree with Luca. I, I'm still uh, finding myself waiting, full of curiosity for for. And I think I guess uh, one thing in particular I had in mind that you alluded to earlier was this question around oversight for dual use research. Which maybe maybe it's helpful to, to begin by defining what you mean when you say dual use research, and because that is an area that comes to mind for me where. It, it is not clear that the real challenge is, you know, allocating a lot of funding towards this issue. Although, of course, people who are working on, on solving it do need, you know, to be able to keep the lights on. And, and there are certain agencies that can operate more effectively if they're well-funded. 
But fundamentally, it's, it's not a problem necessarily of building anything with resources, but rather of governing what already exists. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your start a conversation around this question of more broadly governing the life sciences and biotechnology. I left the question around dual use policy and uh, it almost feels as though I planted it because this is something I would, would love to talk about. Um, but yeah, I think you're completely right. You know, addressing dual use policy, and I'll explain shortly what exactly that means, is not a question of money and it's not a question of finances. It's really about how do you design a policy that is flexible enough so that it stays relevant as technologies and capabilities are rapidly changing, but that is also clear and specific enough that people can use it and they can read it and understand what it means and see how it clearly applies. And I think that striking that balance is one of the main challenges with designing an effective dual-use policy. So just to go back and and describe what dual-use policy is, really this is, when I talk about dual-use policy, I'm referring specifically to U.S. federal policy. So people can use dual use in many other settings, but dual use research of concern, DURC, sure, uh, known as DERC, refers to the U.S. federal policies. And these are the original dual use policies were centered around 15 agents, they called agents or toxins, and seven categories of experiments. And what that means is that these specific agents or pathogens and these specific experiments were listed out. And these were the only ones that you had to worry about when it comes to dual use policy, which that actually was a huge achievement. And it was really important for scientists because you needed to explicitly state what it was that dual use research of concern was so that scientists could know when the policies applied and when they didn't. And before this definition, scientists continually felt like, well, all of science could be dual use. How do we know which science is dual use and which is not? And so at the time that these policies were being crafted, being specific was really important. And that's how we ended up with this list-based approach. But now the list-based approach seems a little out of date because with newer biotechnology, newer life sciences techniques, there's a lot of work that isn't captured by this original list that still could be meaningfully considered dual-use research of concern. And so we need to figure out better policies to try and capture all of this. Recently, there has been a relevant debate happening around dual-use policy on Twitter and in real life, and it's around a set of experiments that were performed at Boston University. So what appears to have happened is that there were researchers or are researchers at Boston University that created a hybrid version of SARS-CoV-2 virus. And hybrids, they're also known as chimeras, which listeners might have heard that term being thrown around, especially in the context of pandemic research. So the hybrid they created was a combination of the Omicron spike protein with the original Wuhan wild type SARS-CoV-2 virus. So they combined those two things. And what this resulted in was a lab-made virus that was more lethal than Omicron to the specific type of lab mice that they used, which was not just a normal uh, mouse. They used a specific strain of laboratory mice. And uh, so it was more lethal than Omicron, but it was less lethal than the original wild type strain. So something in the middle. And the reason that they did this experiment was to figure out the characteristics of the spike protein. So that they're trying to 
learn more about what the spike protein does, how it functions. And that is a scientifically useful thing to try and understand. But what's been interesting is, so there's an epidemiologist and a physician, Dr. Mark Lipsitch, who is at Harvard, and he now leads the CDC's new forecasting center. And what he pointed out on Twitter was that this actually does count as gain-of-function work, at least in his opinion, because even though the ultimate result of what they created, the virus that they created, was less lethal than the wild-type strain, you wouldn't have necessarily known that before you did the experiment. And when you add an Omicron spike protein to a virus, we the one thing that we know about Omicron was that it was less susceptible to the original vaccines. And so now you're giving the wild type virus that ability for an immune escape and, and giving it immune escape properties. So that is also concerning. Overall, this is not, you know, the most dangerous kind of, of what we call gain of function work or dual use work. You know, we're not they weren't conferring really efficient human aerosol transmission on something that was super virulent and that wasn't that the human population didn't have existing immunity to. That's what we would consider some of the more concerning types of these experiments. But because in this case, most of the world has already been exposed to Omicron. But as this whole situation points out, the term gain of function is so broad, it can mean a lot of things. And this could be considered gain of function work. And the scientists who are performing it didn't didn't realize that. And it's because that gain of function term is so broad and kind of not not well understood. And so the reason that there's controversy around the set of experiments isn't necessarily the content of the experiments. As I said, they're not the most concerning kind of gain of function, but it's more the fact that the B, the Boston University researchers didn't necessarily realize what they were doing could be considered gain of function, and they didn't alert the National Institutes of Health, they didn't alert their institution, and they didn't try and figure out if special approval for this work was required. And there's another um, great uh, person on Twitter, a virologist named Florian Kramer. I, forgive me if I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, but he's a virologist at the Aiken School of Medicine. And he pointed out that one of the reasons that researchers don't reach out to NIH or the Department of Health and Human Services as they're supp- supposed to is because the current U.S. dual use and pen- potential pandemic pathogen policies are hard to parse for scientists. And so he's really advocating for increased transparency and really clear guidance for scientists. And I think that's definitely something that we'll need to incorporate into improvements in U.S. federal dual-use policy. So, yeah, I think overall it's just an illustrative example of the challenges we currently have around dual-use policy. And I think the other thing to mention is that the work was posted online as a preprint which gets to another important mm. aspect because, you know, in the over the past 10 years, journals have often come under scrutiny for publishing gain-of-function work. And so they've become a lot more aware of what the risks of uh, around publishing dual-use work are, what we know as information hazards. And, and it's hard to do that as a preprint server just because of the volume of work that you're looking at and the volume of work that you're publishing. But interestingly, during the last... A meeting of the U.S. The U.S. federal government has this group of scientific advisors. This group is called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, or NSABB for short. And during that meeting, 
in September, they actually invited an editor from one of the larger life sciences preprint servers specifically to talk about this issue of what happens when you're publishing dual use work on preprint servers and it's not getting as much review as under a traditional journal. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think this was a, a a really interesting case, and I think uh, I I also appreciated Mark Lipsitz's point about looking beyond sort of the specific contents of of the experiment, but also looking at how various institutions um, responded. And, and one of those institutions is, is the concerned public and people like us, people who are listening to to the podcast like this, um, who I think rightly are alarmed about the idea of hazardous experimentation and or hazardous information being published and, and who are calling for more oversight. Uh, I really appreciate your point, Jassi, about, um, you know, focusing on this term of, of gain of function and the inadequacy of simply asking a binary question of whether something is gain of function or not. Um, and I think as important as it is to have this, you know, speaking of this policy window, we talked about whether there actually is some, some interest as important as it is to seize that moment to, um, you know, show a lot of concern from the public uh, around this issue and call for action. I think it is similarly important to recognize how actually thorny of a question it is to, to figure out how to oversee this. It's not just an issue of inaction or of scientists not wanting to be, you know, having regulations imposed. I think there is some lethargy and some inaction and there is something about the culture of uh, not wanting to be regulated. Um, but I think it's also just actually a difficult question to find out how to effectively lay out um, what research should and should not be conducted. And I think there, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that, as the term applies, dual use, often we're talking about research that does have ostensibly benefits and, and people can disagree about how how large are those benefits? Are they just benefits in the sense of being scientifically interesting or do they actually have public health benefits? But at least in, in many cases, that will be a legitimate and legitimately difficult discussion to have. What is the, the, the weighing the risk and benefits? So that's one challenge is how do you actually find out weigh this balance of risk and benefits? Um, then another challenge is this, um, challenge of defining something that is, if you just said, okay, let's ban so-called gain-of-function research. So research that takes a pathogen and gives it a new function, like increased um, lethality or transmissibility or immune escape. Let's just ban that. Well, if you just said ban everything that, I mean, ban is a crude term, but sort of prohibit everything um, that can be characterized as gain-of-function, well, you'd have both two different kinds of errors. You'd be prohibiting things that are completely benign because they might technically be gaining a function um, for some organism, but but it's actually not dangerous. And also you'd be failing to prohibit. Uh, so it's, it's overly restrictive in one sense, and then it's insufficiently restrictive in another sense of there is research that might not be traditional gain-of-function research um, that still poses a risk um, by advancing some some frontier of what is possible with for instance, with synthetic biology. And this is something I know I've been, has been discussed um, 
on, on the, this podcast before. So I encourage people to check out some of the, the earlier episodes and some of the work of, of the people in those episodes. Um, so I think, you know, that question of actually um, figuring out where is this red line um, is, is not trivial. Um, and then, as, as Jassi mentioned, you also want something that is both specific enough to be actionable, as, as Florian Klemmer um, emphasized, you know, some scientists might be interested in complying, but that they don't really know where this line is. So we want it to be specific enough to actually tell people, can you do this or not? Um, but also flexible enough to be, shall we say, future-proof and not just be this list of things that this is what we know is concerning now, but then five years from now, when there's been some scientific or technological advance, that list is rendered inadequate. Um, and all at the same time, you also don't want to, uh, in the effort to regulate these things, create further information hazards by pointing out and saying, this is the most dangerous thing you could do with biology. Let's everyone agree to not do that one thing, um, because that might sort of inadvertently shine a light on something that um, perhaps shouldn't be, be, be emphasized in, in, in that term. So, um, and then the final thing I want to emphasize is, and I guess this maybe goes back to my previous point about um, drawing on sort of longer standing expertise is this is not a new dilemma. This is something that has been debated um, hotly for the past two decades, especially I think in the past decade since um, the sort of two, 2011, 2012, uh, where there was some particularly controversial and fraught experiments um, around H5N1 influenza research. Um, and, and there has been a lot of work before the pandemic um, trying to hash out how, how should we approach this. Um, and and, and I, I also think it's true that, um, that there are new ideas that are coming into this space and, and this energy of saying, listen, I can't believe that we're, we're just not really taking seriously the risks of this research. Uh, and the frustration that, that I see people expressing around that, I think that's, it's really positive to see people actually caring. Um, I suppose I, you know, I want to encourage people to, to then sort of also really engage with, okay, assume that we had people, you know, we got people to listen and, and try to do something about this. What, what exactly should we do? Um, I think that's a, a thorny question. And I, I know it's something, Jesse, that you've also been, been working on. I, I myself worked a little bit with, um, a great group of people at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, uh, which has a a team on biological risks, and I've been contributing there to a project um, to, coined uh, the sort of the Red Lines project of trying to also with David Relman at Stanford trying to find out where where do we draw this line in terms of what should be permitted and not. Yeah, I'm interested in um, yeah maybe first asking a clarifying question and then uh, perhaps like a more uh, substantive question, but. Um, going back to this, like, Jesse, you mentioned at the start that there is this, you know, kind of like regulation or laws around like 15 particular, uh, pathogens that, uh, you know, you uh, should at least not do a certain like defined set of like experiments on, but then there also seems to be this like broader set of interventions against, uh, you know, potentially like dual use or gain of function research that's maybe more driven by social norms around, uh, publishing, preprints, funding, um, whatever else. Uh, I guess my clarifying question there is like, uh, this like SARS-CoV, uh, like two incidents, whether, you know, that happened to be one of the like pathogens and experiments that is like explicitly like redlined, um, 
in you know the kind of like legal or like regulatory sense or whether this like went against the like norms of the profession uh and then that i guess like in turn leads me to uh you know like maybe the more uh substantive question uh joshua maybe maybe for you um on the yeah like if you know you're interested in like you know, mapping out like where to draw uh, red lines and what science allow and and uh, like what not to. But like once you've kind of done that, like yeah, what are actual like intervention points that you can do here? Maybe including like particularly useful ones that that don't just fall within uh, you know um, like legal uh, and, and and regulatory capacity. Yeah, great question. Maybe I'll just tackle the first clarifying question and then I'll hand it over to Joshua. So, with regards to the specific U.S. federal policies that might have exp- uh, applied to this set of experiments. The dual-use research of concern policies would not have applied. But and, and furthermore, there is another set of policies called the Enhanced P- Potential Pandemic Pathogen, or EPPP policies. And those frequently, th- those, for example, apply to when you are dealing with a known pandemic pathogen or potential pandemic pathogens such as avian influenza, and you are doing something that is aimed at enhancing it. So for example, you are increasing the transmissibility or you are increasing the virulence. But even then, this wouldn't strictly fall under that category of regulations either. So it really falls more under the third that you mentioned of social norms around gain of function and the currently kind of more opaque process of reaching out to NIH, reaching out to NIAID, asking them what they think about this. Is there a way to reduce the risks? Should they more carefully have set up some checkpoints along the way? Should they maybe have some Mm. laboratory or some surveillance of laboratory staff to make sure that they don't get infections And, and like just having more processes around? And that gets to what Florian is talking about, where that's not totally clear at the moment, but for if it's, uh, of interest to listeners, there is currently a review that the U.S. government is conducting around whether or not these policies, both the dual use as well as the potential pandemic pathogen policies, should be changed and updated to capture work like this, or if it shouldn't. And that's it's currently under debate, and no final decisions have been made. Yeah, and um, maybe to sort of jump on to the second half of, of Lucas' question, as I understood it, um, you know, I. I so first of all, I didn't mean to to imply with with my sort of previous remark about recognizing the difficulty of defining where the red line is. I, I don't mean to suggest that we can't do that at all. I I do think that you know I don't you know without getting into the details of listing specific experiments or categories of experiments, I I do think that there are things that um, where it seems that the the balance of of risks and benefits does not uh, favor um, sort of carrying this out, uh, at least not carrying it out without excessive uh, sort of or abundant caution. Um, so let's suppose that we, we, we had some, we had a sense of, of where this line is. And we also maybe had some political capital, some political will. Where would you actually intervene? Um, and I think there, there is quite a few places actually where you could um, do something. You can envision sort of the the life cycle of of scientific research, starting at what ideas are conceived, and this gets to this question of what are the norms around research? What motivates? Um, what what ideas do the research come up with when when they embark on a project? What what hypotheses do they want to test, and what methods do they want to use to test them? And here, I think there's a lot of 
good work that is being done across the world um, and can be done to really create a sort of a culture of responsibility and a security mindset and a safety mindset that does not say don't do experiments, don't take any risks, but rather says, you know, be deliberate about how are you trying to achieve uh, a given scientific outcome with which methods and with what balance of risk and benefits. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of actors that um, work in the space. I think one favorite of mine is the International Genetically Engineered Machine, or iGEM, um, which is this, uh, it was discussed a lot in one of the, the very recent episodes. Um, I don't know if there's anyone in, in that sort of changing norms category that, that you want to highlight, Jesse, uh, or can you know, we can continue through the life cycle of, of life science. I mean, I would just refer uh, people to the most recent episode and tell them to listen to Tessa's podcast with you all. And, and that's a great example of someone who's thinking about how you can embed this within the social norms. One quick question here, because I guess in the Tessa episode, we talked a lot uh, about iGEM, right? Which is where, where Tessa is like currently working at. But I'm curious, like how else to, you know, actually go about like changing norms, be a, you know, in like scientists approach or like in publishing, like how does that actually work? Do you kind of like ask a journal, uh, you know, asking like the editors or, you know, does it involve like more, more, more public pressures as a like leading by example way or are there like other ways to, to kind of like get leverage on this? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it is, um, yeah, I guess what the, the first category I had in mind was really just uh, getting people to voluntarily or sort of out of their own accord embrace this idea of weighing risks when, when pursuing research. But I also think it's about setting the right incentives. And, and I guess that leads me to, to the next step that I was going to talk about, which is a question of, okay, we, we have certain researches being conceived. Well, what research is being funded? And this is where funding agencies... Uh, whether governmental uh, or philanthropic agencies or bodies um, have a say in in what are they incentivizing or what are they encouraging. And um, I think this is, you know, of course, where it's so important to have a place like the National Institute of Health, uh, the NIH, and, and other agencies in the U.S. that are responsible for funding the uh, a large portion of, of, of research in in the U.S. that they have good policies when they're evaluating what to fund, but also philanthropic funders. Um, one example is the Wellcome Trust um, does have a at least some kind of dual-use policy for evaluating what research to fund. And I think it's both because you can directly have an influence on does this project go ahead or not, but also that spills back into this question of what research are people conceiving of in the first place, because when people think about what research agendas to draw up, they are thinking about what will they be able to get funding for. And you can sort of send a signal. And I think one point that I really liked that Tessa brought up is the earlier you can intervene, the better, because you don't want to have a situation where someone has invested, you know, um, years to, to pursue a research project and, and only then find out that maybe someone doesn't want this to get published or maybe someone doesn't want you to go ahead with a a certain experiment because it, it is in fact too risky. So um, sending that signal in a very transparent way, this is how we think about funding research and whether it's too risky, I think is, is hugely important. Um, I think one organization that, uh, a very recently launched organization that is hoping to, to tackle this issue is the International Biosecurity and Biosafety Initiative for Science, or IBIS, 
uh, which was recently sort of unveiled and, and recently announced their uh, first executive director, Dr. Pierce Millett, who, who used to in, indeed head the um, be vice president for responsibility at iGEM. Um, I think they, uh, you know, it's the organization is brand new, but they have been they're positioning themselves to really continue this long-standing conversation around how should funders approach um, the the funding of potentially risky research. Um, and then after the funding stage, there's a question of you know what research is actually conducted. Uh, is is it something that even if you had funding in hand, are there any regulations that should simply prohibit you or, or govern the environment in which you do certain research? And finally, there's this question of what is published. And here, journals have have played a role and and really been part of this conversation, uh, especially in the past decade. There's been some um, at least as, as far as academic academics go, I think some some fairly intense debates around what should and shouldn't be published, and 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 this also looms really large uh, when it comes to incentives because academics are really incentivized to to publish and publish in prestigious journals. So if Nature or Science, as they did in 2011 or 12, publish certain experiments on manipulating. Uh, H5N1 in influenza virus to be more transmissible in, in mammals, as was the case at that time, that sends a strong signal. Um, you know, if, if you can manipulate this virus in a certain way to give it a new function that's really concerning, that is publishable. Um, and so it's really important for, for, uh, big journals to be part of that conversation because they, they really do, um, sort of, uh, create many of the incentives that, that scientists ultimately are, are thinking about. Although I also really appreciate appreciate your point, JLC, about the what about preprint servers and this way of publishing research without review and how that might change the picture. And yeah, I'd be curious to hear what if you've been doing any thinking on how that, uh, if at all, changes the landscape. Yeah, it's something that I was, I'll admit, less educated on until I watched the recent National Security Advisory Board for Biosecurity, the NSABB meeting where they invited, I think it, it was an editor from BioArchive, I believe is who they invited. And the editor spoke, or um, the person from BioArchive spoke about how they actually do have a little bit of, or I shouldn't say a little bit, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like it's not substantial, but they actually had uh, some fair amount of thinking about making sure that they're not publishing work that is concerning or risky. And it sounded like what they've been doing is simply turning those manuscripts down. And if something is obviously in violation or requires further review, they'll just turn it down for publication on the preprint server and go back to the authors and say, look, this needs more review than we have the bandwidth to handle. So please um, submit to a journal where they can actually carefully review the risks of this work and how to best publish it. I mean, that leaves the window open for them posting it on their own website, posting it somewhere else, and it's not addressing the problem fully. But it did seem like they were aware of the issue and trying to mitigate it somewhat. Although this, the the Boston University paper, it was, it did end up being published on a preprint server. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen some, you know, I've heard some people express some pessimism around this idea of how do you regulate what information is getting out there in, in, in a time where, um, you know, anyone could post anything on, well, 
if not a preprint server, because there's some element of, of governance going on, then on their personal website. And, and, and I stand that pessimism, but I also do think that it's not quite as binary as whether the information is out there or not. Um, I do think it is the case that it would be better to, you know, make sure that, that people or that scientists are not um, creating information in the first place that, if shared, would pose a, a hazard or enable someone to to do something dangerous. Um, but but it's having said that, I also think there's a difference between whether something is on a personal website or on the cover of Nature or Science. And there's also mm-hmm. a difference yeah. on whether it is published in in full or maybe you can engage with the authors in a constructive way and say, how about you, this is published, but with certain, you know, maybe certain things are available upon request or maybe certain things are omitted in, in terms of details around what exact work was done. Um, so I think there there's a lot of space between preventing information from being disseminated anyway and um yeah and and doing nothing well i think enforceability is is certainly really difficult probably the most difficult aspect of of information hazards and one thing that was previously used is the distinction of classified research but classified research, where you really have a lot of controls around who can access it, who you can share it with, it, it has its own set of problems, where as soon as the U.S. is doing classified research on pandemic pathogens, you worry about sending the wrong, wrong signal to other communities and other countries that, you know, what is this work that they're doing and why can't it be shared? So I think there are other ways to share information that are not you know, fully public and on the internet that could be useful. The one thing that comes to mind is, you know, I think it was a year ago or so, I published a paper with some colleagues, including Dr. David Relman, about a protocol that had been published in Nature Protocols. And this protocol was a step-by-step you know, recipe for how to genetically engineer SARS-CoV-2. And it provided the exact ingredient list, the the quantities of reagents you would need, and the order in which to do all the steps. And that's the point of this journal, Nature Protocols, is to really make the protocol as easy to replicate and accessible to everyone. But the point that we were making in our response to this article was that the people who were already working on vaccines, who were already involved in the development that needed this kind of technique, they already had this information or they had asked others directly for it. And the only benefit that you are getting by publishing it on the internet is now giving that capability to a lot of people who had, who had no way to access it before and who are maybe not particularly skilled in the art of dealing with these kinds of protocols and experiments. And you know that internal information sharing amongst a trusted network that already happens a lot, and it's it's publishing things for the forever future on the internet that seems quite dramatically different from that and is less easy to enforce and brings up a lot of difficult challenges. I really liked your article on, on that uh, on that subject, um, and I, as I think you recognize, again, we have this real dual-use nature of 
in many ways, you know, we could use this phrase, you're lowering the barriers, you're enabling someone to do something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. And a lot of the time, that's a good thing. Um, particularly if, if you enable people, people with um, more uh, limited resources to be able to participate in, in basic science and, and also in sort of the broader bioeconomy, the, that there's a really compelling case to, to make for that often. Um, and yet there will be examples where the benefits of lowering those barriers or increasing that access um, are, are simply outweighed by, by the risks of whether it's an accident from someone with inadequate safety facilities or inadequate training or potentially worse, whether it's a misuse for someone with sort of nefarious intentions, um, those risks might might outweigh the, the, the benefits of, of reducing barriers. So and I and I think um even if you if you have the view that you're very confident that the risks outweigh the benefits, you're at least gonna have to engage with the fact that many scientists are gonna have a very strong instinct to the contrary. And many people are gonna be sort of very rightly concerned also about the equity considerations about who is gaining access. And so I think if if you want to make progress on on actually regulating some of these things you have to really understand and engage with those arguments because you, you're going to encounter them um, very often and you are going to have to have really compelling ways of, of dealing with them. I think that's a solid recruitment pitch. We need more people <laughs> to work on all of these issues because there are so many and they're really complicated and they're, and they're authority. I, I don't, I I don't want to be the, the sort of, um, yeah, uh, you know, making it sound like there's nothing we can do and and, and everything no, no, is, is difficult. <laughs> if anything, it's it's a it's a very encouraging sort of call to action. Like you're saying, there is mm-hmm. a lot we can do, and I think there is, including on these thorny questions around dual use. I think um, a lot of people have come up with with really creative uh, approaches. Um, so it's it's more of a hey, here's an opportunity to 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 make progress on a hard challenge rather than a progress is is doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, approach. Right. And I, I guess I also like understand you as saying that there is a lot to do, right? Like on the margin, like so to speak, as you say, right? Like it's not about a binary, is this available somewhere on the internet uh, or not? You know, if you just focus on that, then you might uh, give up. But there's like a lot of like value in, you know, getting things like move like from the spectrum, right? So if there's um, yeah. gain of function research, making sure that it's like not in the like most accessible uh, like nature. Uh, journal, um, but you know, instead, like maybe on a personal website or something like that, is like still a big and like genuine win, uh, even if it's like not the like platonic ideal of uh, like governing the the biosciences. I'm very sensitive to the need to have open science, and um, especially for the global health setting, increasing access to biotechnology for those communities. And I think, luckily, that a lot of the work that we are talking about that is concerning with potential pandemic pathogens and dual use research, that's an extremely small subset of all of life sciences research. This most concerning concerning work is, is a very, very small fraction. And it's, it's still unclear as to how much this particular kind of work is needed for things like vaccine development and how much benefit it has and whether there are other experimental techniques that could give you the same information that don't carry similar risks. And so I think, yeah, luckily right now we're dealing with a small 
sliver of science that we should really carefully consider regulating more. But a lo- the vast majority of science, it's, it's not affected by these concerns mm-hmm. as much mm-hmm. as severely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so th- this has been, uh, yeah, like a really interesting discussion around um, governing uh, like biosciences, which, you know, as I kind of like here is like very focused on the decisions of, uh, you know, national governments or, you know, uh, philanthropists funding sciences or even like individual uh, scientists and their norms and conduct. But one area that I know we haven't touched on yet in the like uh, policy space is kind of these like broader international frameworks. Uh, so one in particular is the, the BWC, the Biological Weapons Convention. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you guys uh, have any thoughts on particularly interesting reforms or, um, yeah, things that could be like useful on, on that front. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy to start with that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I think it's, it's especially timely, uh, perhaps around the time that this, uh, episode is coming out, given that we have in late November and early December of this year, 2022, we have the ninth, um, review conference of the Biological Weapons Convention, which, or the BWC for short, which is um, the BWC is this international treaty that uh, prohibits the development, stockpiling, and use of biological weapons in all forms. And the review conference is uh, international gathering that takes place every five years. The last one was in 2016 um, to make progress on... Um, sort of maintaining and upholding this strong norm um, against biological weapons and also ensuring that that norm is complied with. And I think the, there's a lot that could be said uh, about the Biological Weapons Convention. Um, I think I'll, I'll keep it somewhat brief and, and just emphasize that I think it's it really is is quite important. I think it's uh, not to be taken for granted that we do have this very strong international norm. Um, there are no sort of publicly professed or disclosed biological weapons programs in the world. Um, and the fact that, that is the case, I think, is a great success for humanity and, and something that is really important to maintain. At the same time, there, there's also much that... Um, uh, remains to be desired uh, sort of for the Biological Women's Convention and in particular around how able are we to um, verify compliance with the convention. And I think with the review conference coming up, I, um, you know, in addition to this longstanding challenge that's been going on for decades around how do you verify whether countries are complying, there's now an additional challenge of political tensions arising from the the war in Ukraine and um, specifically uh, allegations um, from uh, from Russia about um, illicit activities at uh, Ukrainian labs, um, which we have seen in in other domains. I was recently at a um, conference on the non-proliferation treaty around nuclear weapons where these tensions between Russia and other countries uh, really were at the forefront of the conference and made it really hard to make progress. Um, so I think in, in a nutshell, I think the Biological Weapons Convention has been really important. There is so much more that it could do. Um, and we are not exactly at a sort of 
uh, uh, a period of smooth sailing for international cooperation on making progress on those main, you know, remaining challenges on, on verification of compliance. So um, I think it's it's hugely important. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear, Jassi, if, if this is something that that you've also been spending any time thinking about more recently. I completely agree with your comments. And I think it might be useful for listeners. The budget for the Biological Weapons Convention is equivalent to, you know, a, a U.S. McDonald's. You know, that it, like the budget is extremely small. And if you imagine a world where you didn't have a treaty, an international treaty that hundreds of countries had signed on to, to not have biological weapons. And in that world, you could buy one for the price of a McDonald's franchise. You would absolutely want to do that. And here we are, we, li- we already live in a world where this treaty exists and it's, we're not doing enough to support it. You know, it's really, it's quite unique that we have this treaty and we should try and do more to make sure that it, it can achieve everything that we hoped that it would when it was first signed. And an interesting thing there is the contrast with the international infrastructure around the equivalent convention for chemical weapons, which mm-hmm. um, for perhaps interesting historical reasons has received a lot more attention and a lot more resources um, in, in recent decades. Um, and I, I, it's, to, in my mind, quite frustrating that there is this huge disparity in, in how many resources and how much attention is dedicated to biological weapons, given that, um, in my view, enormous threat that, that is posed and certainly in the future will be posed by the development of, of such weapons. Um, I think, I guess, to, to strike you know, one note of optimism is, um, yes, there is, I think, uh, a lot of tension on the international uh, stage around multilateral progress in, in many different domains. Um, at the same time, I also think that um, there, we talked pre- previously, you know, we've talked a lot about the United States. I think um, the United States and, and, and certainly also other countries have, there was last year a conference, a meeting of the state parties that, um, you know, I think uh, made some, some very reassuring uh, expressions of, or commitments to, to, you know, the, supporting the, the convention um, and making progress on, on building trust around uh, compliance with it. Um, I think there's also a couple of other areas where um, progress can be made. And one is on this question of getting more con- uh, countries to ratify, to sign and ratify the treaty that haven't already. And then to help countries that have done this to draft national legislation um, to actually um, govern uh, biological weapons with with their domestic legislation. Um, so I think there are there are some areas where progress can be made. Yeah, I'm curious to maybe um, draw out in particular where you know uh, potential like individuals or, or listeners uh, you know maybe particularly in mind here um, like work they could be doing or, or things in the world that you you would like to see. I think that at the the most important progress is going to come from state parties. Um, being able to agree on making progress on how to verify compliance with the treaty, and I think it's 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 quite hard for individuals to to contribute to that. Um, ultimately, that's 
you know, decision making at a very high level that has to um, come through to to make progress in that domain happen. I do think that there are other areas where there's, as I mentioned, a lot of tractable progress can be made. Um, one is around this technical question of, let's say you did have consensus, because the BWC does operate by consensus. Let's say you did have consensus around, we want some mechanism for verifying the country's actually complying. How would you do that technically? Um, unlike with a, a sort of a nuclear power plant that is harder to hide, uh, microbiology, synthetic biology happens at very small scales. And it's actually quite difficult to figure out how would you actually um, have a sense of, of um, what is happening and is it in compliance with the treaty, particularly given that you know, private companies and countries are going to have some interest in maintaining certain privacy around what research they're doing and what activity, even, even legitimate activities that they're pursuing. And I think that is a technical question that I think um, it would be great to see more research. There already is a lot out there, but more research on if we had the political will for some kind of verification regime, what would that look like technically? And then crucially taking the next step of translating that to bringing that to policymakers uh, and engaging with policymakers who, who are going to be assessing this question at the, at the national and international level of um, what concretely could we actually do um, to, to verify compliance. So, so that would be one technical area where I think research can, can make progress. And then as I mentioned on this question of um, helping countries join the treaty that haven't already or supporting countries that are in the, the treaty to submit annual reports about their activity, biological activities to, to build confidence between states or to draft national legislation. Um, there's a couple of uh, nonprofit organizations um, that, that do work in this space that people might be interested in looking into. So um, one is the, the Africa Centers for Disease Control, their biosafety and biosecurity initiative is... Um, working on the African continent in uh, both the uh, supporting countries looking to join the, the treaty um, and also the question of submitting these annual confidence building measures, these reports. Um, there is also the Verification Research Training and Information Center or VERTIC that provides assistance to nations um, for compliance with various international um, agreements and laws, including the Biological Weapons Convention, and also assists on drafting national legislation. Um, and, and I think another initiative is uh, something where the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, where JASI is, has been doing some work, is working with uh, sort of you know, outside of, of government relations, but between academic institutes, uh, in this case with the um, uh, the Changjin University Center for Biosafety Research and Strategy on a joint set of biosecurity guidelines for codes of conduct for scientists that um, hopefully uh, will be endorsed at this year's review conference um, to again, push the envelope on this question of uh, responsible science. Um, 
being endorsed under the Biological Women's Convention. So, so there are examples of nonprofits that I think are contributing meaningful ways and where individuals can either, you know, work with those organizations or perhaps individually contribute to, to the same, whether it's technical research or advocacy um, priorities. Yep. I definitely think that Joshua's suggestions form the, the bulk or the, the meat of really what you can do and what needs to be done. I can throw on some oddball ideas. I, yeah, I don't think that these are really <laughs> the ones that you should no, prioritize, but you could, for example, go intern at the BWC Implementation Support Unit. They do accept interns, and so you could go work for them. Or, as Joshua mentioned, go work for any of the other think tanks doing excellent work in the space. If you, speaking of you know helping countries ratify the treaty or change their policies, I mean, if you live in Israel, you could consider advocating for Israel to sign on to the BWC because they're not currently a supporter. And one really interesting and very much an oddball idea that I heard from a colleague recently, this colleague is Tara McCauley. She works um, in the field of blockchain investing currently, I believe. And one thing that she mentioned to me was that there are all these really interesting mechanisms using blockchain to try and facilitate decisions that have to be made by consensus. And so there are ways for you to, for example, put forward your choice but have it be confidential and you're using a blockchain mechanism to like enforce this. And then it's only once everyone puts in their choices and they're revealed and you can kind of, she is much more knowledgeable on it than I am. But I just think that, you know, if you are, if you care about this issue, but you work in a completely different field, if you have a conversation with someone who works on the BWC, you never know, you can come up with some interesting ways that you could help. So I would just encourage people to, to talk to people if they're curious. Put BWC on the blockchain. I love it. <laughs> there you go. That's the solution. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, there's, there's, um, yeah, there's really great. And I think there is like so much here to unpack both with uh, BWC and, uh, you know, maybe biological weapons and possibly even like bioterrorism more broadly, which I think like deserves its, its whole entire episode. But if you guys are like, all right, uh, moving on, I'd love to kind of like circle back uh, onto like some of the uh, original like R&D you know, potential interventions here because we spent a lot of time, you know, kind of like mapping out the the, the policy landscape, if you will. And, you know, what, one place to like maybe kick this off and again, kind of reflecting on, on lessons from COVID-19 or not, it seems that a lot of, you know, conventional wisdom is that um, vaccines were really the, you know, the thing that turned the tide uh, in, in, in fighting COVID-19. And, you know, maybe stepping back, I'm, I'm curious, um, yeah, like what you guys think about how much of pandemic response, you know, that kind of like phase of the, the, the bios security um, process kind of like boils down to just accelerating uh, vaccine development as opposed to uh, like other um, medical countermeasures. Uh, Jesse, I know that you in particular have have previously written an article on antivirals, you know, thinking drugs and, and medication. So I'm particularly curious, uh, yeah, like how you see that fitting into the narrative. Well, first, thanks so much for looking at at that article, it's a little bit out of date now, but I appreciate you doing a bit of background research. So that, um, you know, it, it really stems from just my training. My training is as a medical doctor. And so I had an a early bias towards being curious about what medical countermeasures were being used for biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. And, you know, vaccines have interesting uses in this space where you obviously use vaccines to vaccinate your population so that you so that you they don't suffer from infection 
But we also, for example, vaccinate our military. And that's almost more from a deterrence perspective. When you know your opponent's military is vaccinated against something, you're less likely to use it as a biological weapon. And we do vaccinate our military for more things than we do, at least the U.S. military, for more things than the civilian population. Then vaccines can also be very useful for controlling early outbreaks and preventing things that are just outbreaks from spreading to become epidemics and pandemics. And this technique has been used with a lot of success for controlling Ebola outbreaks, where you would do ring vaccination uh, in an early outbreak and preventing it from becoming an epidemic or a pandemic. But I think there are also illustrative examples of where vaccines you know, aren't the only tool that we need because we don't have vaccines for everything. We still don't have a vaccine for HIV, for example. And so we have to remain open to the possibility that we will not develop a vaccine for every potential pandemic pathogen out there. And that perhaps there are risks associated with knowing exactly which pathogen is not, you know, that we would have a very difficult time developing a vaccine for and information hazards around that. So I I think... You know, vaccines are certainly very useful and important, but also there's there's so much interest in vaccine development that I feel like I can rest easy at night and sleep sleep at night without concern that vaccines will be neglected, at least. And then on your question of antivirals, you know, I think early during the pandemic, I was interested in antivirals just because as an as a medical doctor, you learn about antibiotics and, you know, penicillin was just first used to treat soldiers during World War II, just in the 1940s. And 60 years on, it's completely transformed medicine and how we think about bacterial infections. And so it's natural for people to think about, well, what if we could do that with antivirals? And what if we had broad-spectrum antivirals that you could use that were as effective as broad-spectrum antibiotics and that you could use without even having to know what virus you were dealing with and they would be um, they would be a therapeutic. But I think that there, yeah, the, the promise of broad-spectrum antivirals, it's been something that researchers have worked on for a while and and it it's a it's never received as much interest as it's receiving now. So just as an example, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, the NIH, have recently announced a new effort where they plan to put $600 million into these new centers called antiviral drug discovery centers for specifically for pathogens of pandemic concern. And it's AVID for short. And I think there are seven of these centers that are going to be set up across the U.S. Stanford is one of them. Some researchers at Stanford is one, are one of them. And they're specifically going to focus on antiviral drug discovery for things like pandemic influenza and other pathogens of pandemic concern. So antivirals are getting a lot more interest, more interest than they ever had before, especially after you know, the use of some of these antivirals during the COVID pandemic. But I think that, you you know, I would, I would be disappointed in our response if all we focused on was vaccines and antivirals. And I, I'm really excited that the government is also thinking about funding personal protective equipment and some of these other things, because antivirals, they are 
by it, they are inherently a response technique. And it's hard to see how antivirals are going to prevent future pandemics. And I think focusing on prevention is something that medicine does less well. And it's, it's constantly a dilemma that medical doctors are, are dealing with and public health and prevention can't be forgotten in this. So even as we're spending money on vaccines and medical countermeasures, I am personally more optimistic about other preventative approaches. Yeah, I think the question on where antivirals fit into pandemic preparedness uh, more broadly is, is a really interesting one. And it's like still an open question in my mind of like how much to update from COVID uh, and vaccines, given that, as you said, right, like we seem to have been like very lucky uh, in the case of COVID, you know, maybe uh, in part because uh, just of like the virus kind of inherently and maybe also in part because we already had like some lessons from from SARS. But, you know, it's like really striking how, how able um, we were. Uh, to, to deal with COVID, right, compared to HIV and um, other uh, pandemics uh, in the past. But then I think there's like also an interesting uh, other point to like maybe raise, which is that even if you get the development time uh, to produce vaccines down really quickly, right, and like COVID was really um, breathtaking here again and like, you know, smashing the, the previous record, which I think was four years down to one year. And now there's a lot of talk on getting even that down to 100 days. Um, the other part is like also in trying to get, uh, you know, vaccines distributed, uh, to the places where they're actually needed can often be uh, a really big bottleneck. And there definitely seems to be space for antivirals in playing that part, at least to the degree that they are like cheaper and also more accessible to, to lower income countries. I think that's also like a really important one where I think COVID also taught us in part the legacy that like, just because you have a vaccine doesn't mean that everybody and especially often the, the people who need it most have, have access to it. And there's definitely a whole bunch of like bottlenecks in, uh, you know, uh, drugs there uh, as well, but, you know, maybe speaks to the need of like needing more than, than one uh product and sorry yeah really quickly just to like keep monologuing um for a bit is i would also plug uh gfinder is a really useful resource that helps you break down um emerging infectious disease r&d spend and i think yeah like as, as you mentioned jesse there um you know vaccines are really dominating and you know regularly taking uh you know up to half of of all r&d spending whereas i think uh antivirals and drugs are like closer to 10 percent or something so uh yeah like a wait, wait a half of, of what kind of spending uh emerging infectious disease okay. r&d i think it's important to emphasize that that's then already a very small subset. Yeah, it's it's of about overall a dollars a year. pharmaceutical yeah. um, spending. Because I think uh, while I, I wholeheartedly agree with basically everything Justin and you, Luca, just said about the importance of having sort of a very versatile arsenal of of measures, where vaccines are, antivirals are are but one part. I think one area where maybe disagreed or or hope that I'm wrong was on Justin's point about vaccines not being neglected and, and sleeping easy. Fair, right? I think yes. it depends. Neglected compared to what? So certainly less neglected um, compared to before the pandemic. And and it sounds like, Luca, that it's a large share of, of emerging infectious disease, R&D. But if you look at overall pharmaceutical research, it, I believe, mm-hmm. certainly was the case before the pandemic. And I would expect it to still be the case that it is a fairly small share, especially if you consider the incredible promise it has in terms of um, social impact. And I, I hope that it is the case that um, we have learned a lesson about the importance of proactively investing in vaccine research and development. Um, but uh, I think it's something that will require a, a persistent effort. And I think one reason for that is, the one reason why this is important is, as Luca alluded to, the success of the... Um, the COVID vaccine development process um, was 
uh, in part due to previous research on, well, obviously not SARS-CoV-2, given that it emerged in late 2019, but on related pathogens and on these. Um, so, so there's a lot of research done at the um, U.S. National Institutes of Health. Um, there's an article by, by UA, USA Today um, focusing on, on the people um, that did a lot of that research that since ended up partnering with Moderna um, on leveraging Moderna's mRNA technology. Um, and a lot of that research happened well before the uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, not because we knew that this particular pathogen would emerge, but because people were concerned about a general class of pathogens and were trying to be proactive in, in doing more fundamental research that hopefully could be generally useful. And I think that kind of um, platform approach uh, that is very proactive is likely to be underinvested in um, relative to how much uh, promise it has. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, um, yeah, like a uh, particularly uh, good point to raise, right? Which is to emphasize that the like overall pie here is is really small, right? And like uh, maybe to uh, like further emphasize that, right? Like um, I think if you exclude, uh, you know, current COVID-19 uh, uh, R&D spending, then I think overall, right, like the pie for emerging infectious diseases is almost, uh, I think, like just barely like a billion dollars. And if you look at like neglected diseases as a whole, so I think malaria, HIV, TB, kind of like endemics going on, then um, I think it's like three billion, which, uh, you know, um, in the like grand scheme of things is like so, so small, uh, you know, if I don't know how many McDonald's it would be, but I'm sure somebody can can do the maths there. But, uh, you know, a lot of the like really early cost effective analysis, which is you know a great thing to kind of be nerd sniped by is just looking at how much, you know, dollars get spent per, you know, uh, dally or kind of like year of like life lived per uh, disease. And the like stats on these are just like, uh, you know, like truly mind boggling, right? If you compare it with, um, you know, other diseases like um uh, cancer or, or other things that are like maybe more more prominent in like global north countries like a lot of this comes out uh, like under 30 dollars per uh year of life lost like each each year uh, it's like really quite shocking but yeah I'll, I'll link lots of more of that into the um show notes so if if we're thinking about then like what what can we do in terms of you know getting the incentives right here to help hopefully like shift more funding and shift more more interest in developing some of these like r&d measures um joshua you had like a really interesting um article which which you know um, I think spoke about like some of the pitfalls that uh, you know traditional market incentives might fall uh, into when we're thinking about uh, pandemics and particular pandemic prevention. Um, wondering if you can like maybe lay, lay out the case there. Yeah, sure. So I, I believe the article you're referring to is uh, one from a couple of years ago um, that I wrote with Jonah Sandbring and, and Neil Sherian. Um, and I guess a, a fun backstory for that article is it was in the process of doing research for that that I believe was the first time I spoke with Jassy back in early 2020 um, because I had been so impressed and inspired by your work on antivirals. And um, I, yeah, very vividly recall discussing this, the the early stages of this research with you. So I appreciate um, the opportunity to to discuss that now a a couple of years later. Um, And I think, um, and and I'm very thankful uh, that uh, while Doing that research in early 2020, that you know, certainly there was a long literature on um, on vaccine development incentives to build on. Um, there was back then there was still, you know, what I felt were novel things to say. Um, but 
I'm not sure I would, <laughs> given how much interest there has been in the past couple of years, uh, I, thankfully it's no longer the case that, that I, I would have anything new to say because I think a lot of smart academics have um, really, you know, come to this field and, and mm. you know, thought hard about and advocated for ways of incentivizing vaccine development. But that, that's a bit of a prelude. But to, to get into sort of the, the actual ideas from the paper, I think um, there's, there's sort of two, two points. One which goes back a couple of decades, um, which is this idea of advanced market commitments. Um, and this was especially pioneered by, well, now Nobel laureate Michael Kramer, but also many colleagues on this idea of creating a guaranteed incentive um, for the development of a product, for instance, a vaccine, um, for which there weren't sufficiently strong commercial incentives to invest in research and development, uh, particularly when comparing to more lucrative alternative um, areas or pharmaceuticals where there's a lot um, more revenue and, and profit to be to be captured. Um, and so the one early idea among many was this idea of making an what's called an advanced market commitment or an AMC um, by guaranteeing um, to purchase a, a certain quantity of a um, of a vaccine if developed successfully. Um, to ensure some demand. And this has been quite successful. There's some research on, on the effectiveness of this for encouraging um, development of um, pneumococcal vaccines. And I think, so, so that's the first basic point, which uh, you know, goes back several decades about this idea of you want to uh, create an incentive to develop something that is not commercially uh, viable by itself. Um, and one way of doing that is by guaranteeing to purchase a certain quantity of the product um, if successfully development, developed at a certain price. Um, and then a, a more recent point that um, has come up is that for vaccines specifically, um, you don't want it to... The ideal scenario is one where very few doses are used because we managed to intervene, we managed to... Um, develop the vaccine swiftly and stop the, the outbreak in its tracks um, before it becomes endemic. And so in a sense, the socially most, for, from the perspective of society, the most desirable outcome is mm -hmm. one where very few doses are used. Um, but if you're tying the reward to the developer to, um, to the quantity of, of vaccines that is being used, um, then the, the sort of socially optimal outcome, one where the, where the outbreak is stopped very early on and very few doses are used, is not the most um, lucrative outcome. And to, to create the right incentives for sort of really investing in early and, and making sure that vaccines develop it as, as quickly as possible, um, you want sort of those two incentives to align between the interests of society and the, the interests of uh, uh, pharmaceutical company. Um, so then you have to think about different ways of uh, how can you incentivize um, research and development in a way that is not tied necessarily to quantity, but in some other way tries to make the financial reward commensurate to the full social impact, uh, including the impact that comes from stopping an outbreak very early on. 
Um, and then a third, uh, a further layer to this, and this is the one we, this is really the, the, the main point of, of our article, um, is that some research isn't just useful for um, the, um, for a single uh, pathogen, but has positive technological spillovers or positive externalities um, for other areas of research. And so if you're thinking about the providing a reward that is commensurate to the social value of some product, you should think holistically about and expansively about that social value. Um, and to give a very concrete example, um, we are very fortunate that there was research going into uh, the MERS virus um, and the, the original <laughs> SARS-CoV virus because specifically research into the um, antigens on these viruses um, and, and how to design uh, the antigen for a vaccine was used when a somewhat similar or a, a virus with a somewhat similar antigen emerged in 2019. And so it was, it was really fortunate that some of that basic research had happened. Um, and we, we would like to replicate that feat. And, and one way of doing that is to um, not just say, if you're thinking about developing a vaccine for MERS, to not just look at, well, what is the burden of disease for MERS? Uh, because in global terms, that's maybe not that large. But to think more broadly, well, what scientific insights um, related to potential future pathogens could come from researching this particular virus or doing um, pharmaceutical development for product focused on this particular pathogen. And so um, more generally to, to encourage this, what some, sometimes is called a, a platform approach um, to, to reap some of these positive technological spillovers. Um, so th there was a lot of different points, uh, some of which... Uh, are very much owe credit to to existing research on the topic and some of which we advance in, in our article. Um, yeah, happy to, to pause or, or clarify if any of that was uh, a bit technical or, or unclear. I remember discussing with you when you were drafting this article and just loving the concept and really finding, yeah, being so glad that someone was writing a paper with this focus because it's really just such a fascinating topic and it's something that, people in public health and medicine don't think enough about it. And it really takes that economist mindset to come to this and say, hey, wait a second, vaccines are functioning kind of like a public good. And they have all these positive externalities and um, pharma, pharma companies are not being, um, they're not recouping any financial benefit from having those positive externalities. And how could we incentivize this? And the whole concept of advanced market commitments, I think is it's just so brilliant and it's done so much good for the world, as you mentioned, with the, the pneumococcal vaccines and really deserving of the Nobel that they won. So, yeah, great, great paper. I recommend. <laughs> well, I, th I think the incredible thing about Michael Kramer is that um, th that wasn't even the work that <laughs> they got the Nobel for. I think it's it's just remarkable <laughs> that that you get that you can get a Nobel Prize and, and still, in my view, that, you know, the, the Nobel that they did get was you know, maybe even wasn't the most impactful work that they've done. So, so mm -hmm. all credit to, to, to Kramer and of course, many other, um, yeah, researchers on this subject. So we've, yeah, been, been talking a lot about like potential, um, 
policy reforms and R&D projects and also R&D incentives, which I think are like really interesting. But I've like purposely been kind of like framing this conversation as well uh, in terms of like pandemic preparedness overall and what the like, you know, if you will, kind of like mainstream landscape looks like. Uh, I'm also like acutely aware that a lot of effective altruists and presumably that the both of you um, are like also particularly interested in global catastrophic biological risks. And I'm keen to maybe like spend some time talking or, or, or thinking through how some of these interventions, you know, from the pandemic preparedness space in general map onto GCBRs um, and, uh, you know, where, where there might be like trade-offs in terms of like focusing time, effort, attention, again, uh, you know, in, in the spirit of um, growing the pie, but also working within constraints there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if either of you want to like kind of jump at like maybe disentangling some of these like debates here and, and maybe giving us a bit of a landscape. Sure. I think that's um, that's a really great question to be tackling. And, and I'd love to, it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I'd, I'd love to have a, a conversation around it. Um, I, I can't say that I, you know, have... Uh, great answers to to the bigger strategic questions. Um, so um, these are sort of tentative thoughts, but I think if nothing else, it's it's really important to have that conversation about how does taking a focus on global catastrophic risks or even existential risks or X risks, um, sometimes we use this phrase global catastrophic biological risks or GCBRs, what does focusing on those types of risks look like in practice and is that different from the general project of um, trying to prevent pandemics of, of any scale. I think um, let's maybe start with with where they overlap and I think it's really important to to emphasize that there is just a lot of things that will make the world safer full stop regardless of you know both from the perspective of preventing another pandemic like COVID and from the perspective of um, preventing the truly worst case scenarios the catastrophic or existential risks uh, including the ones that might even jeopardize the sort of future of humanity um, and the, the, the reason why it's so important to emphasize that is because it helps us um, work together with people who have a wide range of motivations and uh, and build a broad coalition and really avoid sort of um, silos or even adversity between people approaching biosecurity or pandemic preparedness from slightly different angles and um, preserving that kind of collaborative coalition building spirit is, I think, extremely important and, and in many ways um, is going to make both objectives more likely of succeeding. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think that the conversation we were having just a few minutes ago about vaccines shows you how easy it is to maybe fall into the trap yourself, or it's not necessarily a trap, but just it's so easy to fall into that thinking of of trade-off and, you know, one versus the other. And, and, and when in reality, we should be trying to focus on growing the pie, as you mentioned before, and having that really big tent of people who care about pandemics and making sure we're including people who come from public health, they come from biosecurity, they come from security, they, or military or medicine, you know, all of these people have different expertise and experience. 
and they might have different interests within. They might be more. They might care more about natural pandemics. They might care more about deliberately engineered pathogens. And so we need people focusing on all of these different things. Yeah, I, I think that we can yeah chat more about it. And I'm curious to hear also, Luca, if, what how you feel about this discussion as a person who doesn't necessarily work on this day to day, and how it sounds to you from the outside. Yeah, I guess um, I can like maybe play the role of like giving you guys like some false dichotomies and you can tell me like all the reasons um, like why they're <laughs> false. But um, like one you know way that I could imagine somebody like viewing this space is perhaps with the like simplification that um, general pandemic preparedness means stopping natural pandemics. Uh, you know, think uh, like zoonotic spillover uh, and, and stuff like that. Whereas like GCBRs is... Uh, exclusively focused on uh, engineered pandemics and things, you know, that need some kind of like human involvement or, or um, gain of function research in order to become so infectious and so deadly um, that, um, you know, it's like really able to um, kill um, a like, you know, let's say like bigger than 10% um, part of the population. So yeah, curious, curious what you, uh, how, how you guys would like respond to, to that characterization. Yeah. Um, Thank you for, for setting us up with that one. There's uh, nothing more straightforward than um, claiming that something is not a, a dichotomy when it might otherwise appear. And But I, I think that is actually a case. And I think at least on the first half of it, this notion that um, you uh, should only care about uh, the people who are caring about preventing deliberate misuse. So someone actually taking something biological and and trying to actively cause harm with it. That is only people who care about um, preventing worst case scenarios or extinction level events or existential catastrophes, um, because that's definitely not the case. And um, the I think the first piece of evidence for this is the fact that people have tried to prevent and have worked very hard to prevent um, deliberate biological events for a very long time. Um, you know, to take just one milestone in history is the Biological Weapons Convention now has its 50th anniversary. And I think that, you know, um, and, and the work on preventing the, the development of biological weapons, of course, goes, you know, precedes Biological Weapons Convention. And so this highlights that um, there's a lot of people who historically have uh, cared a lot about preventing misuse of biological agents um, from a wide range of motivations, not just from this existential risk or long-term future uh, angle. And I think as we look uh, forward on the developments on the biotechnological and the life science frontier, it will increasingly be the case that I think um, we should really be concerned about the role of engineered pathogens, uh, deliberate release and, and accidental release of those, um, not just from the angle of worst case scenarios, but also just, not just, but but also from the angle of preventing less severe pandemics. I think this, um, yeah, the general advances in, in making biotechnology more potent and more accessible is, is a real concern for, for everyone. And it, I think it would be 
it would be really unfortunate if that got too tightly coupled to this idea of um, global catastrophic biological risks or even long-termism, um, because I, I think it is a global priority from a, a wide range of moral views. Now, why do why do people have the sense then that there is this dichotomy? Where where does that idea come from? Um, well, I think that does have some reasonable basis, specifically from based on the assumption that um, if you're going to have uh, if you're if there were to be a very very severe, even worse than COVID, even much worse than COVID event, um, one line of reasoning is that this would be more likely to happen from someone who had uh, or, or, or originate from the deliberate engineering of making a pathogen much worse than what we see in nature. And so I think it is, um, I guess the bottom line is that it is perhaps the case, it is understandably the case that people who worry about worst case scenarios are especially worried about engineered pathogens. I think that makes sense, but they shouldn't be the only ones who are worried about engineered pathogens. So yeah, I guess that's my my first attempt at, at your dichotomy. I really appreciate Joshua's break, breaking that down. I think one way you can maybe visualize this is, for example, you could think about a future in which it is very easy to synthesize your own pathogen using a benchtop DNA synthesizer along those lines, and that multiple smaller actors like non-state actors or smaller terrorist groups use that to continually you know, across the world have smaller outbreaks that are destabilizing. And those are not an existential risk, but those are certainly extremely concerning. And it's just, it's a, it's a different type of threat compared to nuclear or things along those lines, because it's just going to be so accessible and, and vastly cheaper. And so I think it is really important to consider that. And, and people who are not, not only people who are concerned, as Joshua said, about X risks should be worried about this kind of a future. Yeah, and w one other thing to um, add to that maybe as well, right, is, you know, if we're thinking just about, like, natural uh, and engineered pandemics, there's also, like, maybe a distinction um, between, uh, you know, intent and accident. And there have, like, certainly been uh, lots of historical cases, if I think of, like, the, the Russian flu, right, uh, which back in the 1970s, I think, killed... Um, like close to a million people. Uh, and I think like there's like strong reason to think there that that is like um, a lab leak that, you know, policies which which either go to like um, regulate technologies used in labs or go to like make labs safer um, seem to have like some um, co-benefit um, across both, uh, uh, you know, general pandemic preparedness and uh, like, like GCPRs, uh, including many of the things we, we've talked about previously in the interview. Here's another um, perhaps like, slightly more controversial one, but um, one other like false dichotomy that somebody might draw is that um, general pandemic preparedness is largely focused around um, helping LMICs and lower income countries, um, you know, get more um, equitable access to a lot of like, you know, like as we said before, drugs, vaccines and other things versus um, a lot of like GCBR interventions are either focused on uh, preventing pandemics uh, outright or conditional on 
um, a pandemic or a GCBR event happening, uh, making sure that at least like a few uh, like people survive. So I'm thinking here uh, more in the style of refuges or uh, super uh, PPE and the like. And I'm yeah, like curious how you would see that where um, a lot of cost-effective general pandemic uh, prevention is about making a pandemic less worse once it happens um, versus um, uh, GCBRs being uh, interventions either being focused at the very beginning or at the like very end uh, of uh, kind of how a pandemic plays out. Yeah, thanks. I think that speaks to this previous point about in some cases, we expect there to be an overlap of general pandemic preparedness and preparation or prevention or response to worst case scenarios. Um, but do they sometimes come apart? And I think you alluded to um, a couple of interventions where that might be the case. So the first one you alluded to is this idea of refuges. I know you had Ajay Kapoor on to, to talk a little bit about this, which um, is roughly the idea of ensuring that if there is a pandemic that or a biological event that um, spun completely out of control, that um, preventing that from reaching truly existential extinction level by having some kind of built refuges um, into which parts of civilization could retreat. And that is, you know, quite explicitly not aiming at stopping pandemics altogether, but rather ensuring a, a more civilizational survival to it. Um, and so I think that's just an area where you have to be honest and say um, that is an intervention aimed at reducing, in this case, extinction risk, um, but not aimed at um, preventing pandemics more broadly. And I think it would be uh, incorrect to claim that um, it aligns with this sort of the, the broader public health goal of stopping the, the spread of disease and stopping outbreaks um, affecting the whole world. Um, and so, so refuges is, is one such, and it's probably the most salient one and potentially also the most provocative one. I think um, there might be other areas where these might come apart. Um, so one what might be if you're evaluating what kinds of diseases to develop medical countermeasures for, um, if you're truly only worried about the truly worst case scenarios, you're going to be um, worried about, uh, you're going to be thinking from a mindset of, well, what are the pathogens that are, um, what, what characteristics would a pathogen have to be, um, to cause a truly catastrophic event? And that might mean that there are certain pathogens that you don't think, quote unquote, meet that bar. And so medical countermeasures for that class of pathogens or that class of biological threats um, might be a lower priority from the angle of pre preventing those worst case scenarios. Um, whereas they would be uh, compelling from the perspective of just, quote, just, quote unquote, um, stopping or mitigating the impact of, of a pandemic. Um, and I think... Uh, then a last category would maybe be areas where you're trying to advance the frontier of some technology. So um, making the best possible personal protective equipment uh, rather than increasing access to or improving the quality of the widely, widely available version of that technology. So that could be, again, personal protective equipment. Um, that's another area where um, 
you might have different prioritization depending on whether you're worried about truly avoiding extinction or worried about mitigating um, the effect or preventing any kind of pandemic, including ones that don't pose existential um, threats. So my point isn't to highlight necessarily any particular programs as or current projects as being these are only focused on the worst case scenarios, um, but rather to point out that at least in principle, the, the worst case preparation uh, and the broader preparation could come apart in, and not just for uh, things like refuges or bunkers, but perhaps also for other interventions. And I think it's important to, to think carefully about um, where they come apart. Um, and sometimes the fact that, that they come apart means that they're going to be more neglected. And um, the wider world is not going to be focusing on that worst case approach. And that's uh, a case for doubling down on it and, and making sure that it's not neglected. Um, and maybe in other cases, it's, it means that it's going to be ha- harder to build a broader coalition um, because it's only looks the solution only looks really compelling based on a certain set of um, worldviews or uh, normative assumptions or priorities. Sometimes you can't necessarily make your whole investment portfolio align with you know being sure with how things play out. I'm just thinking of, for example, who would have imagined in the early days of investing in cell phones that cell phones would be such a prized possession for people who are in LMICs, but it's really a, a huge priority for them. And almost everyone has one or wants to have one. And, you know, that that's not the reason that anyone invested in that technology at the beginning. And you could see how the same thing could happen with investment in this space where, you know, you are investing in highly efficacious, really, really excellent, reusable PPE that is expensive. And it's not clear how that's going to play out, but maybe in the future, that reusable PPE is what people globally, including in LMICs, end up using and turning to. But I think using that as your argument is difficult because no one's going to be able to clearly predict that. And so I think sometimes that can be used as a defense for someone by someone who has not clearly thought things out and is just trying to justify what they're doing. So I think it's a tricky balance. I'm curious maybe for the like flip side of that argument as well, and maybe ask if there are any um, GCBR relevant interventions um, you know, that involve action specifically within LMIC or LIC countries. Yeah, I, I'm assuming you, you, you hear me um, lower middle income countries or, or low income yeah, countries. Yeah, um, busting. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, well, I think one would be thinking. You know, taking this. Um, you might have someone say, "Well, what we're really worried about is um, engineered biology and things that are happening at the frontier of." Um, synthetic biology, other forms of biology. Um, and that tends to be places that have more resources. But then if, if you look down the line, one of the things we've talked about is not just the advancement of the frontier of bioscience and biotechnology, but also the increased accessibility and the lowering of technical and financial barriers 
to engaging with certain aspects of uh, bioscience and biotechnology. And if you think that those uh, bio biological and biotechnological capabilities will not only advance, but also proliferate in the sense of becoming more widely accessible, then you need to think about not just where do we need good governance now, um, but where are we going to need um, good governance um, uh, a decade down the line or two decades down the line. Um, and this is why um, when we previously talked about the Biological Weapons Convention, I was talking about um, the countries that are not yet uh, signatories or that haven't yet ratified the convention. Um, they, they fall in two rough categories. Uh, one is uh, Israel, as Jesse mentioned, Egypt and Syria, um, where there's some really thorny political reasons pertaining to broader geopolitics and security politics uh, that I think relate to um, whether countries, these countries have joined the convention or not. And then there is um, another category of countries, about a dozen or so, that are fairly small countries, um, fairly resource-constrained, that have not yet joined the convention. And I think even in countries where we might say, well, I'm not very worried about bioterrorism originating from a, a small country of less than a million people um, with limited resources, um, but as biotechnological uh, capabilities advance and, and risks proliferate across the world, I think it's really important that we are proactive about putting good governance in place. Um, so that's a really uh, long way of saying that I think um, one area where uh, you might have, you know, the philanthropic community neglecting progress is area where you don't have yet a lot of governance of dual use research, for instance, or of pertaining to the biological weapons convention um, based on an assumption that the capabilities are not there yet that pose risk. Um, and here, I guess I, what I'm trying to say is that the operative word is yet. Um, and, and of course it depends a lot, you know, what timelines are you talking about? What technologies do you have in mind? What specific question? I'm making a very, very broad claim here. Um, but it's, it's something I've been thinking about lately and I think um, is part of a, a sound long-term strategy. We'll have to take that global governance challenge seriously. Yeah, w one other aspect here, I guess, um, particularly on the theme of, of global governance is also global cooperation and to what degree um, you can have like buy-in there. I think like one particular case study is uh, Indonesia and its uh, withdrawal of the WHO sampling sharing network um, yeah, Jesse, I'm, I'm curious if you could maybe give some more uh, context as to that incident and then, uh, yeah, maybe also your broader thoughts uh, on, on the topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to provide some background, previously during a prior flu epidemic that was occurring, so the, the WHO has this global network that countries participate in and it's meant for sharing samples of influenza that's circulating in those countries. And it was really set up for sharing physical samples. And during a prior influenza outbreak that was occurring in Indonesia, Indonesia was sharing samples with this global network. And what ended up happening, the allegations were that the WHO shared some of these samples with a vaccine developer, 
that was located in Australia. And it seems as though some of the samples that the Australian vaccine developer company used were the samples from Indonesia. And they were able to successfully develop or were in the process of successfully developing a vaccine. And when the Indonesian government heard about this, their first reaction was actually to be extremely frustrated because it seemed like the vaccine was already quite far down the development pathway and no one had contacted Indonesia or any of the Indonesian officials. No one had included them in any of this. And they felt as though some of their country's property or some of their country's assets were used by another actor, in this case, a foreign nation and a company in a foreign nation to develop something that might be financially lucrative for them and that Indonesia wasn't wasn't given any participation in that. And then furthermore, they were worried that this Australian company would sell doses of the vaccine and that they would charge an exorbitant price or at least quite a high price, more than Indonesia could afford. And so here Indonesia was feeling as though they had freely shared these samples under the with the understanding that it would be for everyone's benefit for every country that participated in this network. But then they found that a private company had been given access to it and was going to potentially sell them, uh, sell it back to them. And they were really frustrated. So the Minister of Health of Indonesia at the time actually published a article about this. But there was a lot of, for lack of a better word, drama at the time about Indonesia pulling out of the network for sharing these samples. And that was really challenging because there was an ongoing outbreak and the WHO and all the other countries were really invested in having Indonesia be a part of that network. But so Indonesia felt as though they had been taken advantage of and pulled out of out of the agreement and there was a lot of back and forth. And so that's why now actually with the upcoming development of this pandemic treaty and all international agreements related to pandemics and epidemics since then, there's always been a discussion of what happens with intellectual property and what happens with agreements in terms of how are the benefits of anything that's developed from these samples? How are those benefits shared amongst countries? And one suggestion that's been made by many researchers in this space is that these kinds of discussions and agreements have to be put in place before crisis time. Because if you're trying to do this in the middle of the outbreak and people are negotiating and the intentions are high, it just it's not going to go well. And it didn't go well at, at the time. So that's why there's a lot of emphasis now on figuring this out in advance. I could like also imagine um, essentially a parallel here as well, where uh, you know if you're not just interested in um, sampling, but also... Uh, vaccine distribution, consider an outbreak that you want to stop uh, turning into an epidemic and then in turn uh, stop it from getting to a pandemic. Presumably a lot of that will also uh, involve making sure that resources go uh, to the most important places as quickly as possible, which, uh, you know, if, you know, there are like like some lessons from COVID-19 to learn, which is that once a vaccine uh, is out, there is essentially a uh, big scramble for it. You could imagine um, some kind of... Uh, you know, I don't know if this is like the the right jargon or not, but like tragedy uh, of the commons where everybody acts in their own uh, self-interest in order to secure uh, their own vaccines rather than uh, allocating it to the place uh, where it's like needed most urgently that could, you know, prevent um, an epidemic from turning I mean, into a I don't a think we have to imagine it. I think that happened yeah. over the past few years. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. 
mm-hmm. quite severely so. Um, yeah, but no. sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't have I didn't have more. I didn't have more to say. Um, but yeah, right. Like I guess like also goes to um, emphasize the point that having global cooperation and having national buy-in into that global cooperation is really important and maybe means. Um, you know, again, when you're like acting with a lot of uncertainty, I think questions around equity in this case, uh, national government's interpretation of that equity, uh, like presumably really matters. One thing I'd love to talk about is this broader point you alluded to, Luca, about the need for global solutions. Um, so we've talked a lot about the United States. I think, um, you know, we both have some relation to the sort of effective altruism community that historically has been very much, um, based in and focused on North America and Europe um, for a wide range of reasons and being fairly sort of um, geographically and demographically sort of homogenous, um, which is, is a longer conversation in itself. But I think um, when we think about biosecurity, I think there's also some interesting questions about um, what interventions really need to be global to be effective. Uh, I think that's more so the case for some than for others. Um, there definitely are some interventions where I think it makes sense to really prioritize intervening, intervening in, um, at least in, in certain places first. If, for instance, that is where there is the greatest risk posed by the, the biotechnology sector in, in particular settings or the greatest opportunities for making progress. Um, but then there might also be other interventions where you really need it to be, to be more global um, to be effective. So I don't know if, if that's uh, something we could um, reflect on for a moment. Well, I just think that it's a really good and salient point that was we had a worldwide experiment in this and it was really challenging. So there is currently an event that Hopkins is hosting in Brussels along with the Gates Foundation. And as part of this event, they are hosting a tabletop exercise where they intend to bring public health officials, as well as political leaders to do this tabletop exercise. And I participated in the test of the tabletop exercise, so I do know the content. They make up some kind of realistic epidemic scenario or early outbreak scenario, and they ask everyone who's at the table to answer the question of, okay, we have X number of vaccines. They're manufactured in this country, and... How do you want to distribute them as the global community? And it's really interesting to see because, you know, everyone is given kind of a different role and different incentives that represent the nation that they're coming to the tabletop exercise with. And you have some political leaders who are under extreme pressure to not allow any doses of vaccine that are manufactured in their country from leaving their borders. And then you have public health officials who are saying, well, from a consequentialist point of view, it makes sense to vaccinate healthcare workers before maybe sending it to LMICs. Or maybe you want to vaccinate, you know, certain uh, high-risk populations versus do you want to vaccinate the essential workers? Those are going to be probably two different populations. And so there are so many questions about how you do this. And doing the tabletop exercise just really emphasizes that you cannot be doing this in the middle of things happening. Mm. You have to have some kind of framework in advance because it's so hard and it's so easy to just cave to political pressure and realities in the moment of like how the decision gets made. So you have to have some kind of framework 
set up in advance of like, this is the best way. This is the way that is probably going to have this outcome. And this is, and have something that people can kind of latch onto. Otherwise it's just uh, really hard to make those decisions. I'll also just like um, really quickly uh, flag that I think like one potentially like useful resource here. I like vaguely uh, recall from like having read now many months ago is like the biosecurity dilemma book, which I think like has Mm -hmm. um, like a chapter on this as well. I don't know if there's like other resources you want to like plug as well, but yeah, the like moral and like ethical issues here and the like political economy of this as well, right. Is like, um, yeah, like really interesting, uh, fascinating and complicated. Yeah. So I guess um, going back perhaps to the um, original question, Joshua, yeah. Like, do you want to like add any other examples for what it means for, for interventions to be global? Yeah, so beyond this sort of global um, collaboration and global equity piece, I think there's a couple of other things where um, it's particularly important to to have international reach. Um, one would be this question around governing um, technologies, biotechnologies, bioscience. Um, so one intervention we haven't talked about today, but which often comes up is this idea of screening orders of synthetic um, nucleic acid like DNA um, to putting in place a system where if someone orders a um, synthetic DNA sequence for a known dangerous pathogen or something we can predict to be dangerous, even if it is not an existing pathogen, um, you want to have a system in place to flag that and um, at the very least, check in that the people who are ordering this know what they're doing and that it would be in safe hands. And I think that's an example of a system where it's it's hard for me to imagine how that's going to be very effective if it just is implemented, say, in the United States or just in the European Union. Um, if, you know, well, you could imagine if, if you had one state in the United States that um, prohibited the purchase of uh, firearms um, well, people might very easily, and, and I imagine this does happen in practice, um, acquire that, that prohibit item just in another state. And you, you could imagine something very similar happening if you don't have uh, wider reaching governance of, in this case, synthetic DNA, but it could also be other things like certain experiments of concern. Um, and I think maybe it's not the case you need a perfectly global system because, as I mentioned, it, it still is the case that capabilities vary very widely. But there's at least a couple of priority areas outside of the United States where you have really growing bioeconomies and a lot of um, activity in, in different um, areas of biotechnology and synthetic biology where you can imagine having this kind of screening system in place would be important. Um, I think the same goes for dual-use oversight. I was really pleased to see that um, the World Health Organization um, just put out a new document on um, responsible science and and, um, and and dual use. I forget the exact title of the document. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. Um, so that's another thing that I think would need to be fairly international. Um, similarly, early warning systems, if you're doing surveillance for emerging pathogens, you probably want that. Um, at least if your goal is really truly to detect and stop a pandemic in its tracks, then you need that to be implemented fairly globally to be effective. Um, and finally, the Biological Weapons Convention is one where I think, especially because it operates on consensus and especially because there's been a history of there being certain blocks known to have certain interests, um, 
I think it's really important to to build more international collaborations. Um, and one uh, example of that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that have been going on for a long time. Um, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security has, for, for example, been leading or contributing to a, a biosecurity dialogue with between the U.S. and Southeast Asia. Um, that uh, is it, it's just one of many, many examples of regional collaboration um, in the in the realm of biosecurity. Yeah, and a, another example is um, that we at Effective Giving have been thinking about how we can um, uh, increase the reach of the, the work we do and the philanthropic support we provide beyond the United States and the EU to, to other regions. Um, one example is that we are in the early stages of exploring the idea of um, providing funding for the establishment of a new uh, health security center based in Southeast Asia um, to contribute to sort of um, emerging research on global catastrophic biological risks and and policy advocacy um, in that region as well to help make some of those interventions I mentioned previously more global. Um, and it's something that where we're being advised and are working closely with um, the Johns Hopkins Center. And in, I'm very pleased to also get the chance to uh, draw on expertise from, from people like Jesse and others. One section that I definitely want to hit on before we kind of close the, the podcast off is just a bit about like your guys' own journeys. So in particular, one thing I think uh, is interesting that like maybe links uh, the two of you as guests is that if I understand correctly, both of you mostly started in the public health space, right? Or that was like where your uh, initial interest was in, in terms of kind of cause areas. And then it was only gradual uh, that you guys moved towards uh, pandemic preparedness and then, uh, you know, GCBRs uh, in particular. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear a bit about your guys' journeys and, and motivations there. Uh, Jesse, do you want to start off with that? Yeah, absolutely. You're completely correct that I started off with a interest in global health. And when I was thinking about how I could get involved in global health, the most obvious and interesting route for me at the time when I was thinking about this seemed like going into medicine. And so I went into medicine with the vision of a, a future where I would be working for Doctors Without Borders and working overseas and doing a lot of global health work. And I'm really lucky to now be a part of a residency program at Stanford where going overseas and working in Uganda, in Kampala, in one of their main referral hospitals there on the infectious diseases ward is part of my training. And mm. uh, that's been a really amazing experience. So I am, I guess, getting to to live a part of what I imagined myself doing, but I didn't really necessarily imagine myself doing biosecurity work. And that more came during medical school, when I was finding that I was becoming more curious about, you know, doctors, we spend so much time just in the hospital and in the clinic, really, really busy seeing so many patients. And I felt like, well, we have something of value that we could add to policy discussions and decision making processes and trying to figure out if there were any doctors who were involved in that. And that's how I got more interested in policy. And I will fully admit that during medical school, I read Will McCaskill's book, Doing Good Better, and really found it, uh, yeah, just full of interesting and compelling ideas. And as a result of reading that book, 
decided to go over to the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford and do a summer research fellowship where I was working with Greg Lewis. And that was my first foray into biosecurity. And that experience just completely blew my mind in terms of what you could do within the biosecurity field and all the interesting work and thinking that was happening within it. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to try and figure out how I could combine these two interests of medicine and biosecurity together and kind of craft some kind of hodgepodge career out of the mm. mix of the two. To, to the extent that you're doing less um, or expect to be doing less clinical medicine than you maybe once uh, envisioned, what, what, what do you think you would miss the most about that? It's a difficult question for me because I still have this dream of, um, so there's a a physician, his name is Dr. Tom Inglesby. He runs the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins, where I currently work. And he's just an amazing example of someone who does incredibly impactful policy work, you know, going to DC and interfacing with the federal government, um, but then still sees patients on my understanding is on Friday afternoons, still has his clinic where he sees patients. And I think the dream is to be able to do both of those things. But it's really hard to be excellent at policy and excellent at clinical practice because they're fairly different skill sets and they both require a lot of time to master. So I think that I would have to cut down significantly on the amount of clinical time that I'm spending in order to try and become better at policy work. And I think that I would I would just miss that feeling of immediate and direct impact that you can have when you like have, yeah, you see a patient, you figure out their problem, you help fix their problem and you like give them the, the treatment that they need. And um, in the U.S., if I am not doing clinical work, then I can feel confident that there is someone else who is going to do that. But in mm -hmm. a place like Uganda, I mean, they have yeah. excellent trainees and doctors, but they have far, far fewer, especially in the public system. And I, I can feel less confident that if I'm not there providing that, then there will always be a replacement for me. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I remember reading there was an overview during uh, in 2020 when a lot of people were when Anthony Fauci was of the NIH was becoming a, a household name. Uh, there was some description of his his day to day, and you know, in the midst of being a really central, at least publicly, figure in in the American COVID response, also seeing patients uh, quite vigorously and. Um, yeah, that, and and similarly, I think uh, Paul Farmer, the late Paul Farmer, is another person who combined a career of doing a lot of advocacy and and public health institution building work while also being extremely committed to to seeing patients. And the 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 thing you said about the, the feeling of direct impact. Um, I mean, having not practiced any medicine myself, but I, I I imagine that it also is really helpful for sort of putting things in perspective, reminding us what, why is it that we're doing this. I think. One of the crucial insights of effective altruism, as I understand, is the importance of zooming out, looking at the numbers, looking at the big picture, uh, you know, really think about where can we have a big impact. But I think it's also helpful occasionally to zoom back in and remind ourselves what underlies those numbers um, and, and why is it we care about them? Why is it that saving more lives is better? Why is it that pre preventing disease and more individual is better? It's because of the, the horror that that disease and, and loss can can inflict in humans. So um, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly sort of, even though I'm not a medic myself, um, relate to that um, sort of desire to, to be a bit closer to the problem in some ways. For sure. But then it's also, you know, on the other hand, when you're so close to the problem all the time, 
it's hard for you to step back and see the bigger picture. And so when you, when you, yeah, just a, a toy example, if more physicians were maybe willing to step back and see the big picture of tobacco and smoking, like maybe they all would have focused on making sure <laughs> that that's more regulated and that they are focusing on the prevention as opposed to the like um, trying to treat patients after the damage has already been done. So yeah, yeah mm-hmm. definitely. They're always a balance. Both are important and just trying to, I'm here trying to figure it out and how I'm going to combine the two. Yeah, maybe in a um, similar spirit to, to Joshua's question, I'm curious if there's any uh, like core insights or intuitions that you feel that you've gained from uh, either clinical medicine or you know having done uh, fieldwork on emerging infectious diseases in, in LMICs that you think is like really important to uh, hold on to when it comes to to your biosecurity work. I guess tacit knowledge is a way of describing this, or it's it's those things that you learn that are not textbook in terms of how things actually work on the ground when you're trying to design and implement a program or design and implement a policy. If you have never tried to be on the ground as the one actually implementing what it is that someone else designed, then you can miss things that are obvious to people who have done that work. And so it was interesting for me when I was working in Kampala to see, you know, we'd have boxes and boxes of tests being brought in. And it was clear that they were HIV tests that had been funded by programs like PEPFAR. And the impact of those programs, it's huge. But I think that the reason that those programs have been really successful is because they do try and make sure that they're like always in close communication with the people on the ground in terms of like what they really need and how how things are being figured out. And I think if you don't have that experience, sometimes it's hard for you to realize these things. And I think it came up during the COVID vaccine distribution plans as well, Mm. where, you know, you're trying to distribute in LMICs. And if you don't understand how that would actually work and you don't have the experience of having worked on the ground, then maybe you don't realize where things are going to break down. Uh, Joshua, I'm keen to turn the the same question uh, or initial question like over to you as well in terms of uh, kind of career journeys uh, and uh, like what have you. Yeah, can you like lay out a bit on how you came to to work on uh, pandemics and, and biosecurity? Yeah, sure. I, I think I guess one way to begin my story was with an interest in antimicrobial resistance, this issue of um, in particular antibiotic resistance, but um, that when I first started learning about it, um, I think what really, really jarred me was the uh, discrepancy between the severity of the problem, at least according to some you know, advocates and some projections, and the utter lack of attention to it, at least in my immediate environment in the public sphere. And that disconnect um, really stood out to me. And I think um, that in combination with the fact that antimicrobial resistance, I think, is just a uniquely interdisciplinary and um, sort of across different sectors issue where you need. There's lots of interesting economics issues around developing antibiotics and, and pharmaceutical products, which we've talked about today. And um, and then there's all the, the whole clinical side of it, the public health side of it, the advocacy side of it. Um, so that combination of it seemingly being enormously large scale and, and while being very neglected, um, while also potentially being really interested to work on initially drew me to it. I think um, I'm not quite sure. I think, you know, 
antimicrobial resistance and pandemics are not necessarily uh, completely distinct, but on some kind of spectrum. And at some point, I started moving further down the, the pandemic end of that spectrum. I remember, uh, I think this was in 2017, probably being at a conference in Boston on, on pandemic preparedness, where I ended up meeting a lot of mentors um, that really shaped my my interest in this area and my path into work in this area. Then I worked with a couple of different places with um, briefly with the Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security on some pandemic preparedness topics, um, a fairly brief stint. And then I think that the, the next um, stage was when I did the same fellowship that Jassy did, albeit a few years later at, at the Future of Humanity Institute here in Oxford, um, where I think that I moved more in the direction of focusing on these more catastrophic risks and in particular on the risk originating from engineered biology and especially the, the risks from um, potentially deliberately released pathogens. I think maybe somewhat ironically, even though it was housed at the Future of Humanity Institute, I think one big realization for me was that, you, as we've talked a bit about earlier, you need not be motivated by a concern for the future of humanity to, to want to focus on biosecurity because I think there's such a strong argument from neglectedness for focusing on this these risks from um, the advances in, in biology and, and the risks that they pose, or, or even, frankly, the risks posed by engineered biology with, with the current state of biology. We, we have had laboratory accidents. We have seen powerful manipulations of existing viruses that could wreak havoc. And the realization of just how neglected that was, at least the feeling at the time that there just seemed to be such a small community where I was just in the beginning of getting into that feeling. Very quickly, I felt like I knew a lot of people. I was also very fortunate in, in you know, being introduced to people like Jassy and, and uh, have, having a really sort of privileged network. But I think this feeling of how can it be that this field is relatively small? And yes, people have been working hard for a decade or for decades on these issues, but it's such a small field compared to so much other uh, thing, so many other things out there. And um, maybe it was a little bit audacious, but as I started writing articles on this and started publishing some things on this, this feeling of like, th this world is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's absurd that I'm even in any position having just started working in this field to probably not change anything, but even to be contributing to, to the discussion in some way. Like in a sane world, there would just be, you know, huge institutions with massive resources um, and lots of attention such that someone who's just recently finished their education is not going to be in, you know, knowing most of the people in the field or, or at least parts of the field and, and contributing, you know, by, by publishing papers saying anything new. Um, so that feeling of, <laughs> it's just, it doesn't feel like a sane world where this is so neglected. And, and the fact of it being so neglected, you know, there's this common argument from low hanging fruit. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd say that the, the fruit when it comes to dual use governance and preventing engineered biological catastrophes are, are low hanging or at least they're hard to to get your hands around. As we've talked, there are lots of really challenging things, but it does seem to me that it's just a field where um, a lot of really important work needs to happen to stop really, really bad pandemics regardless of whether you're motivated um, by the future of humanity, as, as our institute alludes to, or by, frankly, just not wanting another pandemic in our lifetime. And I, I recognized earlier this important distinction between 
whether you're focused on the future of humanity or just on solving pandemics, it does have some implications, but it's not as though biosecurity is, requires this sort of long-term focus. So I think that was a big realization for me. And, and then that meant that I started doing more work specifically focused on these worst case risks. I, as I mentioned, I think before, did a project with the Nuclear Threat Initiative on this question of red lines. And, and now, earlier this year, uh, joined Effective Giving, where I now oversee the biosecurity grants program. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think it's, you can tell me if you feel that this is a uh, accurate description or not, but I find it interesting that there seem to be kind of two parallel journeys for each of you, where there's like one kind of like journey of topics, uh, you know, uh, Joshua, for example, uh, from antimicrobial resistance to public health to pandemics and then to, uh, you know, more of these like tail end of pandemics. But then also at the same time, um, this like, uh, conceptual kind of like framework, uh, like journey as well, right? Where it goes from spotting, um, immediate needs to, you know, um, thinking not just of, uh, the population in front of you, but the population as a whole, and then bringing in these like other concepts as well, like low hanging fruit, neglectedness, uh, like the like as well. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it's definitely a, an ongoing journey <laughs> very early in my career <laughs> and, and very early, probably also in my, um, conceptual, education and, and insight. So uh, if we talk in, in five years, I am sure that I will look back at how I think about things now and, and realize that um, I'm missing big parts of the picture. So Joshua, you've also recently joined Effective Giving as a program officer. And I'm just like, yeah, curious what you've learned uh, so far in that role uh, as uh, working on the grant making side. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, a lot. Uh, as as you mentioned, uh, I'm still in my first year in the position, so the I'm still in the very steep end of the learning curve, and uh, there's there's a lot I'm learning every week. I think one big insight for me getting to work on grant making is um, that this is perception that I think uh, I see quite often, where people think that. In the realm of preventing large-scale catastrophes, preventing existential risks, funding is really abundant. And uh, as long as you have a good project, um, there is just going to be no challenge to getting it funded. And I understand why people have that perception. So uh, Open Philanthropy and more recently the FTX Future Fund are of course really committed to these areas and do deploy uh, you know, resources on a, a really large scale on the order of hundreds of millions um, of, of dollars uh, a year very soon or already, um, depending on how you define the the area of concern. Um, and as I mentioned, effective giving, you know, also has in in recent years moved grants or recommended grants on the order of tens of millions of, of dollars on an annual basis. So, And, and there are other uh, grant makers in this realm who are um, recommending a lot of large grants. And it's easy to then think that this means that funding is really not a constraint on making progress in these areas. And it's true in the sense that um, <laughs> that's a lot of money. There are, those are dizzying sums, dizzying sums, and you can really do a lot of good with that. Um, but if you take a step back and think of the scope of what we're really trying to do here, um, to take one example of trying to prevent pandemics, that's a whole of society effort. That's an enormous problem um, 
that's has so many moving parts that it really is going to require just enormous amount of resources, most likely um, a, a large share of which will come from governance or at least have to be in that scale. Um, and so this idea that there's just plenty of, of money and just a lack of good ideas, I think, is um, is a little bit misguided in that um, if you think about all the things that need to happen for the risk of biological catastrophes to, to be reduced to an acceptable level, um, that's going to cost a lot more than the amount of, certainly than more than the amount of philanthropic capital currently committed to it. Um, and then I think another misunderstanding that flows a little bit of this idea of funding being abundant is this idea that um, if something hasn't been funded, it's because it's not good work. Um, and I think there's some problems that, as I mentioned, I don't think the funding is actually as abundant as some people imply. Um, and then the second is just that the capacity at these grant maker, grant maker organizations um, is somewhat limited in terms of you know, bandwidth to review and find grants. Um, the, the whole idea is that we want to be looking really carefully and find the best, you know, you'd have thought through very carefully what, how we're deploying this capital. And so that takes time and effort. And I will just very happily admit that there's lots of great opportunities out there that I probably haven't been able to even hear about or much less assess in detail. Um, so yeah, the takeaway is I don't think funding is as abundant as some people would make it sound like. And I don't think that people should look at the grants recommended and say this is the whole space of good work happening out there. Um, there's plenty of good work that maybe isn't funded by one of these big grant makers. And there's probably also grants that are recommended by um, us or our colleagues that don't work out exactly as we'd hoped. Uh, so that equivalence isn't as strong as people might think. Um, and then finally, in terms of what I learned, uh, I think just being at Effective Giving at least in my experience, has really reinforced the importance of having a really healthy culture in an organization. I, I feel so supported by my colleagues. Um, and I think working with people who, you know, well, first of, you know, first of all, they, they see your, you know, they recognize that your well-being and your thriving is really important to be able to do good work, but also they just care about you as an individual and uh, think that that's important to keep in mind even as, we're working on what we think is really important things. Um, I think that's just, it's a bit of a cliche, but hard to uh, overstate how important it is to have a healthy and, and I think also a, a professional work environment where you have a bit of a separation between your work and when you're not working and what is your professional identity and what's your personal identity. And at least for me, I've, I've really been lucky to find that in my current job. So encourage people to think about culture and, and that kind of well-being in, in the places where they're working. Uh, you spoke a lot about, I guess, uh, your work on uh, biosecurity and, and and maybe public health more broadly. But you also seem to have just done a lot of like other uh, like research work outside of that, uh, including like forecasting. And I've even seen a paper on uh, the dynamics of social relationships and stuff like mm. that. I'm just curious to, to hear, uh, you know, even if it's just a, a few minutes, like a, a bit more on that. Yeah, sure. I think uh, I think where you're referring to that. So I did some research with. Um, Ezra Carger and Philip Tedlock and Barbara Miller on, on different approaches to uh, forecasting um, on, on issues where it's hard to actually find out the answer. And then I also did some, some social psychology research with one of my um, longer standing mentors and friends, Brian Earp, on um, what we call relational morality. And I think um, these were both really, I think, formative experience. I think 
um, one thing I really got out of it was the difficulty of doing social science well and the severe challenges that academic social science face um, and how, you know, there's a lot of incentives that push you to overstate the, the confidence that you have in your findings. And, you know, in the, in the realm of forecasting, I think this happens a little bit where we, we have made progress and there are some really interesting insights that have come out of the field of forecasting. Um, but if you really dig into it, it's, it still remains really hard to, to forecast well and well that, in a way that actually guides actions uh, reliably. And it's so important when you're researching these things to um, really remain committed to being transparent about what you can and cannot infer from the research you're doing. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was just really lucky, I think, to have mentors in particular, um, Brian Earp, uh, who's um, a bit of a interdisciplinary researcher, um, who really just emphasized to me from from the first day I was his research assistant that um, it's it's not just this game of finding a p value that makes your paper look good. You you really got to be you know uh, do research with integrity um, in a way that just which does kind of go against the grain of um, to be to be frank some of the incentives in science, but in a way that does even if marginally advance our understanding of how a really messy and complicated world works and, and resist the temptation of sweeping statements, even if that's what can get you headlines and social rewards and whatnot. Yeah, I, I guess that's a like nice segue then uh, into maybe some of the uh, career advice stuff, uh, if you will, which is, um, yeah, do you guys know of any like uh, good resources if somebody wants to do research or do uh, like science well, whether that be um, you know, within academia or, but also like outside, uh, including like some of the, the roles that you guys are doing now? Um, I think one, one quick advice, and this is a common one, but it's just, and, and, and sometimes he's said and done, but being proactive and, and reaching out to mentors um, have played a huge role in, in my life. And I call myself really lucky that I had the opportunity to meet some of the people who've, who've mentored me. And, and not just, you know, think of mentors, broadly mentors can be people who are your peers and who are at the same stage as you, um, who you spar with and, and also then paying it forward, uh, by, um, you know, engaging with others to, to assist them and whatever part of the journey they're in, um, because it really does pay off. Um, so a, a bit of a cliche, but I think it really does ring true. And you know, I've alluded to sort of, um, Jassy and I meeting over, you know, that was such an example of I'm doing research on this topic. You've done research on this topic. Hey, can we talk about it? And, you know, here we are several years later, um, st you know, remaining connected and I think collaborating in, in good ways. And I think that life and research is just so much more fun that way as well. It's the worst is trying to do research on your own in isolation and you really shouldn't be trying to do that anyways. I mean, not to say that you shouldn't have independent thinking, but it's just so much more fun when you have, as Joshua said, sparring partners and people that share interests in the same topics topics as you, and you can just talk about them uh, with them. It's really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really important to uh, I think have this balance between. I, I do think that maturity and seriousness and sort of professionalism is important to bring to. Hey, it's it's really serious stuff we're working on here. The stakes are really high. And in some cases, we are leveraging really serious resources that um, de deserve and, and mandate being treated 
you know, steward it responsibly and, and with seriousness. But um, having said that, I think it's also just really important, like Jassy just said, to to be doing it in good company and and having a, as good of a time as you can with it, even if as you're appreciating the, the gravity of what you're working on. Um, I know I've asked throughout the conversation um, a lot of the... That the time, if you guys can think of, you know, examples for like concrete things you would like to see in the world. I'm, I'm curious if that kind of like takes the form of perhaps um, a research project or an open-ended question that you think uh, a listener or somebody uh, early on uh, in, in their career into looking into biosecurity uh, could maybe perhaps answer like, yeah, if, if any uh, examples spring to mind. I think within biosecurity, there's, there's just so much work to be done. <laughs> It's. I will not be able to list everything that I would love to have someone work on, but I think that I'll give some general principles. So, I think that the within bio, it's straight. One straightforward way to split things up is to think about whether you have an aptitude for or an interest in technical directions and technical projects versus policy projects. And I mean, that's not a clear distinction, but it's just, you know, do you really like the engineering and science aspects of potentially looking into bar UVC? Or do you find that you're really interested in international organizations and figuring out how they make decisions and how you could improve that? Or figuring out, you know, how do you operationalize things uh, within the U.S. federal government or things like that? So, yeah, technical and policy, those are two big distinctions or ways that I would break down what people can work on. And then mm. within that, there's a lot that people can do. And I think that one guiding principle I would give is to is for, for anyone who is listening to this podcast, please consider doing a deep dive in a topic. Because I think that within bio, there are a lot of people who do kind of cursory um slightly superficial investigations into a topic. And what we really need more of are people who just declare, I'm going to become an expert on this. And I'm really going to know everything that there is to know on this topic. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to learn about everything within bio. So I will delegate and trust that other people will focus on other topics. And I think that the more experts we have, uh, then the less, um, duplicate research will be occurring and well yeah less duplication of yeah. effort and more actual progress will be made i think that's a, a super important insight and i think and then it also means i think the flip side of that is also rewarding others who who have really dived into one thing and encouraging them to do that so we don't have an, an environment where people are feeling pressured to socially to you have to know everything or you're going to be you know, called out or seen as not sufficiently generalist. Um, because I, I think there are really many areas where um, only the surface has been scratched and, and that kind of expertise is needed. Right. And then to round things off, what are three books, articles, films, uh, or other bits of media that you'd recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we talked about here? Oh, well, I am going to steal one from you, which is the Biosecurity Dilemmas book. Mm. It's very quite excellent and i actually hadn't read it for a while but then someone told me that they have an audiobook and now i've read it <laughs> so i found it found it great my second recommendation would be one that has already been plugged for this podcast and we talked about it earlier which is the apollo program for biodefense and i think that it's just a really consumable readable technology roadmap for what technologies we might want to invest in and i hope 
that we will have more documents like this in the future so that I don't keep having to refer to this same one, which is already <laughs> now two years old or so. Because, yeah, I think more technology roadmaps for in this space, like for PPE or for UBC would be really useful. And I do know that people are working on that exact thing. So we should have more of those soon. I don't know the specific one, but I'm sure that there is one from either Michael Kremer or Rachel Glenister, like a TED Talk or podcast about advanced market commitments. I would just, I find that that subject is really interesting. And I, I think that listening to something from either one of those two would be useful for anyone interested in that. Great. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll take it up as well. Uh, and yeah, I just wanted to flag as well. I think that like, um, call for like more Apollo-like roadmaps is, is, is a great um, push, I think, not just for biosecurity, but also for like lots of other cause areas. I think it's like a really cool like bit to exist and like refer people to. And yeah, I would love to see uh, more of it in, in lots of like different fields too. Same question to you, Joshua. What are three books that you'd recommend to listeners? The first would probably have to be Longshot, Vaccines for National Defense by Kendall Hoyt, um, which is about the it's a history of the development of vaccines in the 20th century, um, focusing especially on the United States, and in particular the role that the government and military played, the U.S. government and military played in the development of a lot of vaccines during a very fruitful time for vaccine development. Um, and the reason I think it's an important history to, to consider is we talked a lot about the role of pharmaceutical companies, and I think pharmaceutical companies um, do play a cr very crucial role when it comes to development of vaccines. Um, but actually, historically, governments, um, especially the U.S. government, has, has played a really central role in vaccine development. And that, and I think does continue to do so, both in terms of basic science, but also in terms of um, there are vaccines that are coming out of state-run uh, initiatives. And I think that's um, important to, to consider as part of the, the broader piece of vaccine development. Um, also, Kendall Hart is just... Um, really terrific and was um, yeah someone I connected with when I first started getting interested in um, pandemic preparedness now many years ago and who's been a great mentor. So um, I, I wanted to, to give that a, a highlight. Um, the second would be Mountains Beyond Mountains, by which is a book by Tracy Kidder about uh, Paul Farmer, the late Paul Farmer, who's a doctor and medical anthropologist uh, there's a lot I can say about this book. I think in in short, it it first of all is <laughs> profoundly inspiring to read about the dedication that Paul Former had to his work in in medicine and global health, and it's also a book that I think poses a real challenge to people who are inclined to think about prioritization of limited resources and you know how to make the most impact on the margin by instead approaching global health from a more idealistic and in some ways radical approach of saying not just what is the best thing to do on the margin, but what is the standard that we should work towards that, that should the standard for health for everyone that every human deserves. And I, I at times found this idealism frustrating and naive, but I think it has also really challenged me in, in a good way. Um, and then the last thing I would recommend is an, another podcast episode on um, the 80,000 hours podcast with um, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, who is now the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs for the United States. Um, it was Ambassador Jenkins who 
a year ago at the Biological Weapons Convention meeting of state parties, gave a statement that I think signaled a lot of renewed U.S. interest in strengthening the Biological Weapons Convention, which I think was really important. Um, uh, Jenkins is also uh, one of the founders of an organization called Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, which I think is doing some some good field building work in in that space. Um, and I think it's just a really fun conversation uh, with a really inspiring person as well, touching on some of the same questions around biosecurity that we've talked about today. Um, so that would be my last recommendation. Great. Fantastic. And then to round things off, where can people find you and what you're working on online? Sure. Um, I tweet, although uh, nowadays a bit less, uh, at JT Monrat in one word. And uh, a lot of the academic research I've done uh, some of which we've discussed today can be found at my uh, Google Scholar profile um, with my full name, Joshua Taborowski Monrat. People can find me on the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security website. And I believe that they can contact me through there as well. My LinkedIn is very easy. It is just linkedin.com slash J-A-S-S-I-P-A-N-N-U. My first and last name, so you can just search me on there and feel free to send me a message on on LinkedIn, and I will do my best to reply. And I do try and post yet yeah, recent reports and papers and things like that on there or on Google Scholar. Great, and yeah, we'll add links to uh, all of those in uh, the write up. Uh, Joshua Monrad, Jesse Panu, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jesse Panu and Joshua Monrad on pandemic preparedness. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash panu underscore monrad. They will find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you know of any other cool resources on these topics uh, that others might find useful too, then please send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com and we'll add them to the list. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, email us or click on the website where we have a link to an anonymous form under each episode. And lastly, if you want to support the show and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason Cotrebel, for editing the episode and Claudia Morehouse for doing the transcript. Uh, And thanks very much to you for listening.